listening to the quarter to three movie podcast where this week we saw take shelter my name is tom chick and i am joined by christian mir mir uh no, don't worry about that just just call me shampoo <laughs> it's the wrong movie dingus uh, and also kelly wand kelly wand do you have a, a tagline for take shelter yeah uh Note on do-it-yourself storm shelter. For best results, try to be at home when apocalypse happens. Okay. Uh, you know what else? Uh, never mind, yeah. No, no. Go ahead. What? What? Well, have you been to the AMC theaters and they show this commercial before the movies? And it's like this cartoon of like a guy and a girl sitting together, and he's all. She was. I remember that night like it was forever. She was Kelly so one, that pretty. Is for, yeah, that's for AMC's new Stubbs program. Right, mm-hmm. and he's all. She's it's, so pretty. First off, she is pretty. Like it'd be more impressive movie magic if she was hideous. And it's like the movie was. It it was so such a magic night. But it's also, part, it's a cartoon character, isn't she? No, no, yeah, yeah, but the, 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 it shows what movie they're watching. When they show the stub, it says Titanic. Mm. So I thought it should show, like, in between him going, she's so pretty, it was such a great night. Like, it shows the boat crashing on top of people and, like, them drowning. Like, that's the night he remembers. He got laid the first time. Uh, that's not very timely either. Well, I guess if they're remembering back. By the way, aren't we due for a uh, disaster? But aren't we overdue for a Titanic 3D re-release? Who's on board with me? Who's going to go with me to see that? Kelly Wan, will you go to see Titanic 3D with me? Doesn't it feel like it already was in 3D, like it was the first 3D movie? (laughs) It kind of does, yeah. Uh, No, the AMC thing that gets me, and I think I've talked to you guys about this, is when the three ethnically diverse children go to see a movie, the teenagers, uh, they're seen walking into the theater, and then when we cut to them in the theater, a mysterious young black man has joined them but when the movie starts and they get the magic seats the black man for some reason is excluded i i heard you say this and i watched it after you said that and i don't know what black dude you're talking about there's there's a shot of the three ethnically diverse teenagers seated in their chairs before the movie's going to start it's a shot down the row, and uh, for some reason, either there's a black dude who's with them, or he's a freaky weird dude who didn't leave an empty seat next to the group. There's plenty of room in the theater, and then when the magic chairs go up, he's nowhere to be seen. So the magic Wait, chairs. Wait, is this the one where they turn into trees? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like the it's like the elf theater uh, pr- promo thing, right. and the the young black man is excluded from the magic chairs. Maybe he's just sitting next to him, though. It doesn't have to be freaky to. Uh... Do you sit next to, like, if there's enough room, do you just go plop right down next to some guy in the theater? You probably do. I always sit next to the black guy, because that's who's going to not, like, you want to make them your friend. <laughs> I don't I don't know where you're going with that, but let's, let's. You're talk. safest there. It's like being in the eye of the storm. I hope Can we talk racist. about Lion King 3D now? Did you go? Oh, that's this? Africa hot. No, I just wanted to get us off of Titanic 3D and onto something that's really happening. I would like 3D to- movies set before the era of 3D technology always seem weird. Like, like the time machine 
working before you turn this machine on. Like the 3D HDMI. has always been with us, Kelly. It's always been with us. Okay. I think your eyes are 3D. Theater, by the way, was the first 3D movie. Nicely done. Thank you. Uh, you, you, you stole I, that from you motherfucker. You can't just I, steal from me while I'm here. That is so. That is one of those things that is so self-apparent it cannot be stolen. I did not steal that. I'm sure anybody, everyone has come up with that at some time or another, Kelly Wand. As much I, as I, 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 I coined books are 2D. Ah, oh, good one, Dingus. Uh, you know what? I would like to. I would like to take shelter from this discussion of 3D. Mer. <laughs> Remember when Forrest Gump invented happy faces in the movie? Kelly Wand, get that out of my face. <laughs> take that shelter out of my face and put it on the uh, George Clooney movie's face. Uh, Dingus, what is this take shelter thing that we saw? Now, we don't want to spoil anything. Uh, so before we get into spoilers, Dingus, why don't you give us a broad overview of take shelter without ruining any of it? All right. Well, yeah, don't ruin it. All right, I won't ruin it any more than uh, Kelly Wand already has with his tagline. So, um, this week we saw Take Shelter, a 2011 American drama movie mm. about a man who, uh, a man, this week we saw Take Shelter, a 2011 American drama movie that... Did you just do a 30 seconds earlier thing yeah, with your... Right. Yeah. I just did that. Skyline. Uh, so anyway, we saw this American drama movie that you should see before listening to this podcast. Um, the film was written and directed by Jeff Nichols and stars Michael Shannon, Jessica Chastain, Tova Stewart, Shea Wiggum, and Katie Mixon. Yeah! On those last two. Yeah, it is rated R for... Mm, um, what? It, no, listen. What? It's, it's rated R, and I'm going to tell you why. All right. Ready? Yeah. It is rated R for some... Language. <laughs> what fucking language are they talking about? If there's, I may quote Melissa Leo. What? There's no indication. That's just what the MPA tells us. It's rated R for some language. And that's all. It's not pervasive language. It's some language, Kelly, and you're going to have to deal with that. Can you deal yeah. with it? Very no. good. Just, I, for the, oh, I is, got it. Uh, that's weird to me because watching this, uh, wow, well, okay, we'll get into that in a minute. Uh, uh-huh. So, uh, let's see. Yeah, I, w- I want to second Dingus' uh, recommendation. A lot of times, maybe you haven't seen a movie, and you're just like, yeah, I'm going to listen for a while anyway. Uh, I Don't do that. I mean, I don't even watch the trailer for this. By the way, I was. we'll talk about the trailer, too. Um, but I just want to uh, pitch my voice in with Dingus to say, don't don't listen to this podcast. Go, go see the movie and then come back. Or fast forward to our 3x3 three three discussion. Uh, Kelly Wan, do you agree with that, or are you just going to hold off commenting for now? Not only do I agree, but when I saw the poster, I was bummed I'd seen the poster, and I'm like, <laughs> ah. I was before I went to see it this morning. I uh, I was around one of my friends, and I told her she's somebody I don't see very much. I told her I was, you know, I had to run off and see this movie because there's only one theater I can see it, and the, and there's only one time I can see it. And she said, "What movie you see?" And I said, "Take Shelter." And she said, "Oh, the movie about." And I, nope. <laughs> uh, really, I hate your, people. She said, "What?" I said, I don't, just don't say anything. She said, you're a freak. And I said, yes, I am. And I'm so glad I didn't hear anything she said. And I don't want you guys who are listening right now, if you're still listening, to hear anything. Just don't, uh, just go see it. Just see the fucking movie and stop being a bitch. There's no way I could put even a sentence in that would, that would make me feel good. Because if I had read a sentence about this movie, it would have pissed me off. I, I love 
anyway, just let's move on. So in other words, if you're around people like us who are talking about Take Shelter and you haven't seen it, I would recommend that you duck and cover. <laughs> uh, get it? Yeah. All right, get out of here. So now that they're gone, Kelly Wong. Uh, thank God those fucking losers are <laughs> well, I think across town on the landmark. It's such a limited release. I mean, I'm assuming it's just like a theater here in New York. And uh, I, yeah. I don't know what kind of wide release. Uh, this is Sony, This is Sony though, so it should, it should trickle out into more theaters and become an option for more folks. But, uh, yeah, so uh, Kelly Wong. I drive across town to see my Jessica Chastain movies. That's what I've noticed. And I'm never, it's movies that don't make sense. That's what I know I'm going to get if I drive across town. Like, I'm only allowed to see Transformers and fucking Cowboys and Aliens playing every five feet. It's not even in a theater. It's just people playing it in the middle of the street. First of all, Kelly Wan, no, I'm pretty sure that the help and the debt make sense. Oh, those are two different movies? (laughs) (laughs) The... The title of this movie was a spoiler, and when I saw the poster, like I said, I was bummed I'd seen it, but it also totally made me want to see it and not read anything else about it. Yeah. yeah. So, there you go. Well, now, why don't you ruin it for everyone who hasn't seen it right. want, and give us a, uh, what is it, it going to be called this week? What do you, what do you got for Take it? Take Sheltopsis. All right. And well. I just saw the movie tonight, and I just, I only had an hour to write this stupid shit, so it's going to be even... And I feel bad. And then it, and this week, everyone's super nice on this topic of synopses. And they're like, yeah, I'll listen to the synopsis even when I don't see the movie. Because that's how good your synopses are. I don't need to understand what you're talking about. <laughs> the jokes are fine. What you say is so much gibberish anyway, it's irrelevant that the movie is seen. But this time I feel bad because this movie has to be seen before you hear this shit, I think. Like, I'm just regurgitating what you said. But anyway. Here's the fucking shit. Do whatever you're going to do. No, I don't care. <laughs> or everything I say, everyone else does. Uh, all right. So, <clears throat> take shell tosses. So, Thomas Hayden Church is uh, married to Bryce Dallas Howard. And uh, <clears throat> he keeps having these dreams that it's raining Pennzoil and hailing pickaxes. And that his dog's attacking him during tornadoes, because it's also raining tornadoes. And volcanoes are erupting locusts. So he puts his dog in a chicken wire enclosure, and his wife's all, um... And he goes, I don't want him to go crazy and bite my hand during a tornado. And she's all, wait, won't this make him crazy? So he hangs out with his buddy Larry Darrell, and he goes, oh, by the way, I had a dream my dog attacked me and bit my hand, and it hurt all day. So I want you and your family to have him. And the friend's all, cool. My girls will love that. <laughs> anyway, uh, so I was having sex with this fat chick, and Taya in church goes, what are we talking here? And the guy goes, 250, 275. And he goes, oh, that's not so fat for a women's. And the guy goes, oh, her weight was 480. It was the sex was 275, you know, like on a scale of 1 to 10. And Thomas Hayden goes, speaking of, quote, Oscar winner Helen Hunt, uh, Remember that fucking dumbass marble machine in Twister? Was that the worst MacGuffin ever? And the friend goes, I don't know. The diamond in Mr. Magoo was pretty fucking boring. Because the character's blind. What's he going to do? Fuck it? How many carrots was it? And Thomas Hayden goes, 275. And the friend goes, hey, remember that night we kissed after we cleaned out your septic tank? Speaking of which, you hear he was playing Daisy Duke in the Dukes of Hazard reboot? Sarah Palin and Veronica Cartwright. And then Thomas Hayden Church wakes up screaming. 
And he looks down, and his sheets are white and dry. And he's all, no! And he wakes up screaming again. Well, I know he's pooed the bed, and he's all, And his wife's at the dresser putting earrings on, and she goes, oh, don't forget we have that church dinner with the Waltons at 5, and deaf class at 6, and that protest over dinosaur bones at the museum at 6.10, (laughs) and that moment of silence at 6.18, and then at 8 we're seeing the help, and he wakes up screaming and farting. And he's in bed, and his mattress is covered with blood, so he sighs with relief. <sighs> and he turns and he looks at his wife, and she goes, in 3D. And he wakes up screaming again. <laughs> and this time they're in a bomb shelter wearing gas. <laughs> Masks, I'm guessing, is where that was going to go. Right. <clears throat> what did I say? You said gas. Oh. They're wearing gas gasks on their faces. And she takes hers off, her gask, and goes, honey, what is it? And he goes, oh, I had the most horrible dream that we had a daughter. I think she was mute or just super bored and inexpressive. And his daughter goes, uh, well, I'm not mute, but I am 15 and pregnant. Oh, and my boyfriend's either Shia LaBeouf or Kelly Wand. It was kind of a weird night. And he looks around and braces himself, but nothing happens. And he's all, huh. And then the kid goes, actually, it was the guys who directed Catfish. Then he wakes up screaming. <laughs> but he's kind of tiredly screaming now because it's getting a little old, like a catfish. He's all, Ugh. And now he's in a bulldozer in the middle of a swimming pool. And his boss is shaking his head at him. And Tom Hayden Church goes, oh, uh, yeah. Look, I can explain. It's not what it looks like. And the boss is all, what? The bulldozer's in the swimming pool, just like the client wanted. I'm giving you a promotion. And then he wakes up screaming. And he's in a bulldozer in a swimming pool again. But it's adenoid-shaped. And his boss goes, what the? You parked the bulldozer in the wrong pool. You're fired, Peterson. And he wakes up screaming. And his wife turns from the window, and she's brushing her hair and smiling. She goes, honey, what is it? And he goes, oh, the storm, the weather, the sentence fragments. And she goes, oh, silly, look, the weather's fine. There's not a cloud in the sky. And she sweeps the curtain aside, and it's raining suns. (laughs) And he goes, ah! Oh, no, he wakes up. And he goes, ah! Ah, I didn't mind that one so much. Actually, and he looks around, he's in a social worker's office, and uh, the guy with the trash can full of mops sitting behind the desk uh, chews gum, and he spits it out onto his file. And he goes, oh, yeah, so uh, Rabbi Marshak's out sick today with... uh... (laughs) I knew you guys would like that. With uh, urethral diarrhea. And uh, he's having these nightmares about some construction worker with no lips bugging him about metaphysical nonsense. So me and your daughter are splitting his caseload and taking turns throwing all your paperwork into the fireplace there. Kind of nippy out today because of the apocalypse, blah, blah. Anyway, so looking at your file, it says here you are Caucasian. Ooh. Ouch. Yikes. Yowza. So, uh, how long have you been feeling this way? And then he wakes up sighing and smacking his lips with annoyance. And he checks his watch, and it says 2.75 p.m. 
And his wife's in the kitchen slapping him. She goes, you're not sorry. And he's all, oh, thank God, everything's back to normal. And then he wakes up screaming in the cafeteria, and he's eating chicken. And he goes, uh, how many pieces does Hannah get? And the wife goes, 275. But why are you addressing me in the third person? And he looks over, and it's Hannah from the movie Hannah. Uh, and his friend comes over and goes, 275, you told me that was our secret. And he punches him, and then he gets pissed. Thomas Hayden Church gets pissed, I should clarify. <laughs> a little confusing. I'm glad that's cl- Okay, but now you have a mental picture. Of things. Thomas Hayden Church gets pissed, unzips his pants, and he pulls down his thong. And uh, there's a dick where his gun should be. So he pulls it out, and he shoots all the six cameras in the walls with six bullets. And he looks at Hannah, and he goes, you know what's weird? I didn't even see your movie. And then his boss comes over and goes, Peterson, you mullethead, those cafeteria cameras took us six weeks to install. One a week. You fired again. And Thomas Hayden Church sighs, and he waves his smoking dick around the cafeteria, and he goes, all right, I get it. This is a dream, and I'm insane or something. Ha, ha, ha. Existential Sundance bummer fest whoop de doo <laughs> What do I wake up screaming to this time? Fucking sandcastles. My batshit mom's my therapist on Shutter Island. Chicks in PG-13 lingerie fighting samurai in World War One. Harold and Kumar giving blowjobs to bags of weed. A van going into the water for 10 hours while Dingus gives it a standing O. <laughs> Fucking Abe Lincoln, we're on a sandwich board that says, I represent your psyche, what? And his wife blows the smoke off his dick and smiles at him and goes, no, honey, you were the sane one all along. And then the roof of the cafeteria flies off, and everybody but them and the deaf kid carry them away onto the space in serenely serene silence because they're in the eye of this tornado black hole with 11th dimensional fangs that's sucking the earth away. And his dog barks, and his wife smiles and lovingly kisses him, and their hair's waving, and the world's ending. And finally their lips part, and he looks around, and he goes, uh, so why not just make this the first scene? The end. All right, Kelly Wand, it sounds like you weren't that crazy about it. No, are you kidding? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I agree, Kelly Wand, it should have begun with the final scene and then done a six weeks earlier yeah. Title card. Right. Dingus, are you on board with that? Are you really asking? <laughs> That's also my vote for The Quiet Earth. The last shot is the first shot of the movie. And also Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the Donald Sutherland one. Like, that's the <laughs> opening shot. It opens with him going, Veronica Cartwright, you look nothing like the girl from... That uh, Kelly Wand, I have two questions for you uh, uh. to sort of establish uh, where we are in this conversation. First of all... 275! <laughs> Where'd you get your training? <laughs> Actually, I do have three questions. You're right. Now that you mentioned that one, Dingus, that's one of the questions. The other two questions are, uh, do you know this movie's connection with Skyline? Oh. Wait, was that guy the guy who was the guy who... I'm going to take that as a no. (laughs) Uh, the, The directors of Skyline are these guys that own a digital effects company called Hydraulics. Uh, and they did the effects for Take Shelter, and they also executive produced Take Shelter, which I noticed during the credits and thought was so. They're awesome. obsessed with skies. Every all their movies are about weird sky. To be ah, yes, I think that's, that's their specialty. What, yeah, that's what they do. Uh, and secondly, uh, have you seen Jim Nichols? This movie was directed by Jim Nichols, as Dingus mentioned. Uh, yeah. Have you seen his previous movie, uh, Shotgun Stories? 
No, why don't you have a few bars? <laughs> that, that joke doesn't work that way. Uh, all Wait right, a well, minute. Kelly Wand claimed he did all his homework, and so he should have seen Shotgun Stories. How dare you? That was wasn't it, homework, was it? Uh, I do think Shotgun Stories, discussing Shotgun Stories is a valuable starting point for, for talking about uh, Take Shelter. It's not necessary, uh, but I know Dingus recently watched Shotgun Stories. It's a movie I really liked, uh, and you can really sort of see... Jeff Nichols' immense talent in Shotgun Stories. It's so readily apparent there, and it so comes to fruition. I mean, this is a, a fantastic sophomore effort uh, in that this this I'm, I'm just so smitten by this director. Uh, and I would have liked to have talked about Shotgun Stories, but I don't know, Dingus. Should we, Kelly Wan, do you mind if we spoil a little bit of Shotgun Stories for you? Dude, I'm not going to remember half of this shit, so go ahead. <laughs> well, even for, for maybe for folks who have seen Take Shelter and are listening and haven't seen Shotgun Stories, uh, I, I would recommend it. Um, it's a little different than Take Shelter, uh, but it has some of the same ingredients. So, Dingus, why don't you talk a bit? You, you saw it for the first time this week. Uh, what did you think of Shotgun Stories? Um, you, I, I love what you just said about sophomore effort because – because as much as I love shotgun stories, this is an unbelievable sophomore effort. I mean, it's unbelievable where he goes. Um, shotgun stories is great, but it's it's very much more in the David Gordon Green school of filmmaking. And he did and, produce, by the way, David Gordon Green was one of the producers on Shotgun Stories. Absolutely. Uh, the the two of them uh, were in school together at the I think it's the North Carolina School of the Arts. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. Oh, okay. Yeah, and um, and you know, the, you know, I listened to some of the. I, I was tell, talking to you about this, Tom. I listened to some of the commentary track, and Jeff Nichols is talking about casting, and he, he had actually called David Gordon Green, and he was really distraught because one of the characters in Shotgun Stories, the actor he had cast for him, uh, had backed out, wasn't able to do it, and um, it just so happened that. There was this actor named Barlow Jacobs hanging out at David Gordon Green's house at that time. <laughs> and, um, and was Barlow uh, Jacobs a boy or kid? Kid. Okay. And and so um, Jeff Nichols goes, "Wait a minute, Barlow Jacobs? I know him. Put him on the phone." <laughs> <laughs> so that's how uh, these these movies kind of get made. They're they, they're 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 the school of filmmaking that basically says, you know, we believe that independent films should look beautiful like films, and um, and and then there's a, just a lot of space for thinking and talking and ideas to happen. Uh, Shotgun Stories is just beautiful, and Michael Shannon, uh, also known as Tom and Hayden. Thomas Hayden Church, apparently. That's uh, the weirdest connection, Kelly Wand. I, I, I kind of, they're both guys with big heads, but beyond that, <laughs> I don't know where. Dude, they look more similar than Veronica Cartwright and Portia Doubleday, you crazy bastard. <laughs> All, right. All right, go ahead, Dingus. I'm sorry. And, and I think the connective tissue between the two films is how great they are at constructing families in different ways. Um, they're great family dramas, because the thing that appeals to me most, I think, and there's a great many things that appeal to me about Take Shelter is is the construction of the family here. And there's this in uh, Shotgun Stories is very much this uh, family or interfamily um, drama. And uh, it's, it's just a beautifully, beautifully made film. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very uh, it's also got a great sense of location. 
uh, Shotgun Stories is set in a small town in Arkansas. Uh, it's got a great languid pace to it. Dingus, you talk about making room for, for dialogue and ideas and, and stuff to, to happen, performances. Uh, Shotgun Stories is great with that. Uh, and also what I love about Shotgun Stories and what you can clearly see in Take Shelter as well is that it doesn't go the easy expected route. Uh, it, it's a great movie about, you, you know, it's, it's one, one of the advantages of watching independent movies is not knowing what's going to happen. Right. Uh, and I love that about Shotgun Stories and about Take Shelter. Uh, watching Shotgun Stories, you might think that Jim Nichols, he wrote and directed both Shotgun Stories and Take Shelter. From Shotgun Stories, you might think, oh, he's a David Gordon Green kind of uh, – uh, naturalistic style, just let a movie happen, have some improv going, uh, and then just stuff happens and it eventually winds down. Watching Take Shelter, you're like, wow, this guy can do – I mean, I think Take Shelter in a way is a thriller, but it's got a very long, slow, languid burn to it. Um, but but ultimately, I think it's 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 a great movie as a thriller. Like, I can't see – I can watch Shotgun Stories and think, okay, this guy – it's clearly in the David Gordon Green school of filmmaking, but I watched Take Shelter, and I'm like, wow, this guy, give this guy a big budget, you know, let him do, like, I could see him doing a great genre film with a unique slant to it. Um, so those were the things that really surprised me about this as his second movie, is that it did all these unexpected things, and it, it wasn't at all, like, it seems like Jim Nichols has a lot of diversity to him. Uh, it didn't feel like necessarily I could see con continuity with shotgun stories, but it didn't feel like this guy was kind of out of ideas. Like I think of Ryan Johnson who did brick and then he does brothers bloom and you're like, Oh, okay. Well, I guess brick was an anomaly. Uh, shotgun stories. I'm like, wow, Jim Nichols, you know, keep throwing money and budgets and actors at this guy. Uh, well, they, they're going to, cause his next film is a Western. Really? Yeah, it is. A <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of my reaction too. Okay. Yeah, he's doing a genre film. It's called Mud, and uh, you're not going to like oh. to hear this, but it has Matthew McConaughey at it. So, so hmm. they are throwing money and actors at him. I mean, how about how about other actors? Can we? Can I change my comment and say no yeah. money and actors who aren't Matthew McConaughey? At Unfortunately, him. you only said actors, and as soon as they heard that, they <laughs> threw Matthew McConaughey at him because somebody well, else had said bongos earlier, and so they just went <laughs> threw that at him. I mean, Jeff, uh, Jeff Nichols. I mean, he he makes this. This And I love that you use the word slow burn in relation to thriller because uh, I watched Shotgun Stories and I loved it and it's languid and it, I, it just relaxed. I, I felt really good watching that movie. I loved it. But after this, after watching Take Shelter today, I felt exhausted in the best way. Because You know what? It, Go ahead. It, well, it's just after you watch a thriller where you're just sitting there and and – you don't know what is this movie, what is this movie, and it's a good way of not knowing what is this movie, which way is it going to turn out. I was just exhausted. Yeah. You know, Dingus, what that reminds me of, when you talk about this being a thriller that leaves you exhausted and is a slow burn thriller, and then when you talk about Jim Nichols doing a Western, I'm immediately thinking of Kelly Reichardt's Meek's Cutoff uh, as being kind of thriller. Uh, which Kelly Wan hasn't seen, so Kelly Wan sucks. In. You have not done your homework. Uh, but Meek's Cutoff, in in a way, it, it's it's a, it's just an, a really exciting year that we have seen both Meek's Cutoff and Take Shelter in the same year. Is uh, Meek's Cutoff on streaming Netflix, Quickster, whatever the fuck it's called now? Yeah, I am not sure. That's there's one way to find. Pretty hot for it. All right, I will check. <laughs> By the way, really? Wait, Go ahead. I just want to. I, I want to every now and then. I, I think back several podcasts and I'm like, oh, rats, I should have said 
X, Y, or Z. Uh, Kelly Wan once mentioned something about, and I can't even remember the movie, uh, a movie that you that we all hated, Kelly Wan, but you kind of liked because it showed, it kind of made fun of America for following the authority of someone who was misleading America. Do you remember what movie that was, Kelly Wan? Um, That's, the Bible? Uh, I forget. It was some movie that we didn't like. We managed Devil's to Double? Salt. Maybe it was Devil's Double because yeah, Devil's Double. Because you, you managed. I did to, like that one, yes, but I don't see what I don't remember that being. You managed to pull some political point from it, and at any rate, I wanted to say, well, you should see me cut off, and that that was like you know nine ten podcasts ago, so I just wanted to make sure to get that in. Uh, it wasn't Captain America. No, absolutely not. That's the that's the polar opposite of Meek's Cutoff, Captain America. You said Meek's Cutoff was the Agira Wrath of God of Westerns, and then yes. My mind boner exploded. Well, and here's another point of continuity with Meek's cutoff is I think Take Shelter is an amazing and it, it takes a while to reveal this, but it's an amazing example of a zeitgeist movie. Uh, and I'm not even sure it's yeah. trying to be. It just so speaks to the the, the times, you know, you know, the anxiety about powerlessness, uh, the, the sort of the the shame of infirmity and being unable to to provide for a family i mean yeah. it's so the stigma yeah, yeah. he's insane he's losing everything he's doing is wrong and he's getting caught and it, it i i think it's ultimately and here's the huge spoiler and i can't wait to talk about this i think it's ultimately of course a movie about mental illness and in a way it's the kind of it's a movie that sort of explains how people join the Tea Party, I think. <laughs> uh, and, and in that regard, I think of it as, as a very as – as, as an incredibly trenchant kind of political movie in a way. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm, I, I'm really embarrassed for uh, saying that Horrible Bosses is, is a period piece. <laughs> because as I watched this, I, I just kept thinking, I'm terrified about him losing his, his job. I, as, as much as there's plenty of other terror to go on in the film, I was terrified about him losing his job and his insurance. He could just go murder his boss, though. You see, Dingus, he could get together yeah. with his wacky friends. They could murder their bosses, and everything will be fine. He could strap a bomb to a pizza delivery guy. Right. Have that guy rob a bank. It's and it, it'll all be fine at the end because somebody recorded the conversation or something like that. Yeah. And th there you go. A sign of the Times movie. A zeitgeist comedy. Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary. <laughs> Uh, okay, so uh, so Kelly Wand, you have not seen Shotgun Stories. Uh, that's too bad. Uh, I, I recommend that. I will now, now that I know. But you, and this is my favorite thing about doing this podcast: is you guys steer me to shit I never would have seen. That's awesome. That you know. Yep, I never would have found this. I would have put this off forever, and then discovered it twelve years from now, and gone, "Oh, dude, you see that thing?" Shotgun Stories was actually, I think it's two thousand. Seven, eight. It's about three or four years old, but it made a lot of top ten lists. Like it was definitely one of those like critically acclaimed movies that nobody saw, uh, but it got its share of attention. Which I think you know this is how. One another cool thing about seeing Take Shelter is yeah, let's have this really talented filmmaker be given like a, given some cool effects shots. Uh, that was one of the things I really liked is. To help him realize his vision, let's give him a CG studio. You know, this is a great, great use of CG here. 
Uh, I, I like seeing a budget like this. Oh, and actors, too, like Jessica Chastain. Mm-hmm. She's kind of like the new hottest. She was so good in it, and she's in everything, for Pete's sake. Uh, I, she can't be cheap, so I was, you know, I'm very glad to see him able to afford her and the Strauss brothers to do his special effects. And she gets to do a lot in this movie. In Tree of Life, she's kind of having to pose for Malik a lot, and I like her and that movie but in this she actually has a lot to say and do and well yeah the, the lead character in in tree of life is kind of the movie itself right, <laughs> so right. the actors uh and well, yeah she does get Jeff oh, Nichols go got her by talking to terrence malick uh, i mean he right. he he was he kind of had an idea about her and then he had a meeting with terrence malick and terrence malick just talked because Terrence Malick is kind of one of his heroes, and he just went nut. He's just he's like, all I have to hear is that Terrence Malick like likes her, and I'll put her in my movie. And then he had a meeting with her, and he said he, he she's everything that Terrence Malick said she was. So I, I don't know if it's so much a, a matter of money as 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 an actor is making it. They're going to do these kinds of films too along the way. Right, right. My favorite scene in the movie, and like a, like where I. I had no idea what to expect, and it was the exact opposite of what I thought was going to happen and I was being steered to, is in the cafeteria when she sticks by him. (laughs) Like, I think the scene's being set up for, this is the scene where he loses everything. Like, he's gone around the rails. Everyone in the, no one can bear to look at him. Like, strangers aghast. Even though he didn't start the fight, just saying. (laughs) But, like, in public, she she hugs him and she goes, oh, yeah, I'm I'm with you on this. That was was really touching. And what's beautiful about that scene is it really is, in a way, you know, the traditional format for a scene like that is let's have this great actor doing this powerhouse performance where he finally breaks out, and that right. was so effective. But in a way, she almost steals that from him Yeah. yeah. I, by then still being supportive. I mean, she's not scared. She's like, okay, okay. Like she talks him off. And it's such a it's such a, a central theme of the of the movie is that it's their connection. You know, is and I I feel that's ultimately where it goes. It's it's about. This this wife and husband, not just this one guy going crazy and how he loses everything. It's about how he how she stands by him and how they, you know, it's this it's this really powerful portrait of a, of a family. Uh, and I love that about that scene. Yeah. Is that normally you'd cut and everybody would be aghast? And you're right, Kelly Wand. And and the fact that she stands by him. And I loved too uh, the the final scene in the shelter. Uh, where you know she refuses to take the key from him. And, right. And I love too how Jim Nichols lit her in that scene i mean i mean the visually this movie's just got so much amazing stuff above and beyond the special effects sequences i mean this amazing sky stuff but but i i just loved the fact that he how how he lit her face in that shelter scene was just gorgeous and amazing uh-huh. Uh, and she looks, I mean, the way the light catches the angles on her face. She's just an incredibly beautiful woman. And in a way, it almost doesn't serve her well. She's terrible in uh, the debt. And she is most of that movie because she's so out of her element. I mean, she's supposed to be playing some, like, super Israeli spy. Uh, and she's a little too good looking and pampered for it. I mean, it, it doesn't work at all. Um, but she's so good in this, though. Uh, There's even a scene where you have to be a little scared of her, like she's spooky. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, her eyes, her eyes, the way she's lit in that shelter scene. I mean, it it really felt to me that scene and the scene Kelly just talked about at the um, at the booster club or the Lions Club or whatever dinner. It really felt like this was a prequel to The Road with the mother who wasn't crazy. (laughs) I love the way they light her, like you said, Tom, because there's moments where her eyes just look flat black like she's just this 
almost this demon character. And I love that scene, and I love the way they light her. And she's just, I mean, this movie is about, is so much about family. I'm just so crazy about the way they built a family in this movie. You know, I think of, uh, this is like what I think, I think all of us remember Jacob's Ladder, and I think this is like the movie that Jacob's Ladder could have been, like that whole kind of thing about somebody maybe going crazy or what's going on. Uh, There's a good Paul Schrader movie called Affliction with Nick Nolte. Um, Uh, I think of uh, Close Encounters, which I love. think it's like this movie where Terry Garb ditches, like a guy goes nuts and leaves his family to go fly up into space with these tiny midgets that yeah. he can't speak to. <laughs> Terry Garb's like, what the fuck, a volcano in the living room? I'm out of here. <laughs> it's like, and that that's the big budget, heartwarming, uh, mainstream family entertainment. And this is the crazy art house film, man. Take shelter, dude. What the hell? I know. I, I did get this feeling of like, suck it, Super 8. This is how you make uh, those encounters for now. Right. Ah, very good. Uh, but I, oh god, she, she also deserves a lot of applause. I think for her, uh, I, I just love. They both have these just amazing. Like, assuming I, I would, if I was in charge of the Academy Awards, I would definitely nominate both of them. And I know exactly the scene that I would spoil for everyone watching by putting on the on the little clip segment. Of course, Michael Shannon's Lions Club. Uh, outburst which is just michael shannon is so good at that turned up to 11 crazy mm-hmm. and, he, and he gets cast for that a lot which is unfortunate because he's even better i think at, at being an everyman and that's what's great about shotgun stories by the way is he is so everyman in shotgun stories this takes such great advantage of how he's a good everyman and also that turned up to 11 crazy and the payoff for that is the the lions club scene so when i nominate him for an academy award and we show the clip it will of course be that scene because we'll just show that as the exact Example powerhouse acting will ruin it for everyone. But the Jessica Chastain scene will clearly be when uh, she she confronts him and says, "Was I in your dream?" And he says, "Yeah." And she says, "Can you deal with that?" Uh. And, and when he when he when he holds his hand out to her to say yes, she then unfolds her plan. Like you can see, she's come to this point where she's going to like she knows what to do, but she's right. got to make sure that he can deal with it, that he's on board. Like where she takes charge, and she's no longer the sort of the Jennifer Connelly stand by your mentally ill man character, like in Dangerous, what Dangerous Mind, Beautiful Mind. She's no longer that character. She is instead a, a sort of a an equal with him as far as like driving the drama of what's going on here. Like she steps up to his level of participation in the, the core of what's going on. Uh, I love that scene where she unfolds the plan too. Yeah. She had it all worked out. She had it ready. Yep. Yeah. She had her shit together. Yeah. Cause she had to be sane for two. And she's also the mother of a deaf child. So she's used to like, okay, I got to figure shit out now quick. I don't have a choice. Husband's snapping. What am I going to do? There's no panic in her. Can she we was- talk? Let's talk a little bit about the being the mother, the, the parents of a deaf child. Can we talk a little bit about that? How'd that feel for you guys? I think it. I, I I think it was pretty crucial. It worked for me. I mean, to just show that this is a family that is already dealing with disaster. It's not new to them. It's not like here's a happy life and we're going to blindside them with this madness. It's here's how difficult it is to be a family in modern America. Uh, I, I didn't feel. And what an adorable little monkey. Kelly Wand, you were so mean to call her. What did you say? She wasn't expressive or whatever. Uh, but I, 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 I love that, that, that detail. I didn't mean it. Uh, <laughs> you're mean. That's, not, that's, the, that's the fake me. That's the, Kelly Wand, uh, go take it out on Bailey Madison and don't be afraid of the dark. 
What's what's the Martin Short where he's fat movie critic guy? That was that me. The fat uh, guy. I was wearing a fat suit when I wrote this. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, uh, Dingus, how did you feel about it? Did it feel manipulative to you, or did it work for you? Um, I really loved it because I have some experience with uh, with deaf culture and knowing people who work in deaf education. And um, I was fa- I just thought I I was fascinated by that. I, I because as the film started. And the characters were doing some American Sign Language with her. It was very awkward. Um, it very much had the feeling of they've just learned this. And as I'm sitting there watching the movie, because I'm pretty keyed into this, I'm wondering, is this because this is a low-budget film and they haven't had time to learn it, or is this on purpose? <laughs> and as it unfolds, you find out this is clearly something that's happened to her, to this, to their daughter later in life. This, uh, it's, it, it was an accident or whatever. It's not explained, and I love that too. But yeah. it's, it's something that the family has to learn, and the family is learning together. And this is one of the things that they're doing as a family, and it's one of the ways this film builds a family. And I just love the way this film uses ASL and the, the, um, the uh, the ideas of what deaf culture is and some of the controversy about getting uh, a cochlear implant and still learning and and committing to learn ASL because that that teacher that teacher that they have I mean those are all great little scenes and in, in particular that scene where he's late and they show up and he has that whole do I smell bad or not thing. <laughs> Uh, I just I love all of that and the way ASL is uh, American Sign Language is used in this film um, is is just beautiful. It's not it doesn't stick out, but it really it really feels for me that this family is learning to deal with a new disability or a new culture that they have to learn to deal with, and they do it so well. Uh, I love how that happens. Uh, I understand that Michael Shannon trained for six weeks before shooting to learn ASL. Really? No. <laughs> Because I love, too, how awful he was at it. I mean, not because he didn't care or anything. It's just he wasn't as good at it. That's the character. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And also, imagine having a a kid who's six or seven years old, and all of a sudden you're told, you need to learn a new language to be able to communicate with your child right now. I mean, that is phenomenal. And And the way this family does this, and the way Jessica Chastain sort of, is steering the family to do this is yeah. great. And yeah. here's here I want to say real quick, this is again another example of Jeff Nichols' brilliance as a writer and director. He does something a little similar in Shotgun Stories. I won't spoil anything, but Shotgun Stories opens with Michael Shannon uh, sitting in bed. Uh, he's just woken up, and you see uh, wounds from a, sh- a shotgun blast on his back. Uh, and when and how much you know about how this happened is hugely important for the exposition, not in that at some point it's explained and it's a character detail. It's just important that you know just enough to know about the character from this, this shotgun wound. It's not a big deal, but what the movie needs to get from it, it gets from it, and then it leaves it well enough alone. It's the same with the little girl's deafness. You discover that she's deaf. You discover that it's something that happened since they've had her with that great little speech about, you know, I, I still take my shoes off when I come in the house and, and Jessica Chastain's like, yeah, I still whisper. And so you realize this is a disaster that hit them uh, at some point, uh, you, you know, that 
and you don't find out. I mean, the movie doesn't need to explain to us how she went deaf or what was going on. There's no exposition here. It's just we know that this is a family that dealt with the, with the visit, visitation of a disaster at some point. Uh, so I love the way that Jeff Nichols works both those details into his movies. It's and I also, love. Go ahead, Kelly. I was going to riff uh, a couple things that uh, that also comes from A, and it's something that hadn't really occurred to me before because I'm a selfish asshole. But if you were a deaf kid's parent, one of the big things is you can't hear them cry for help. So you have to be extra supervisory even more than you would normally be. And it's also made the Jessica Chastain character super, super perceptive because she's mm-hmm. had, like intuit what the kid. So it's all when she senses something's wrong with her husband. It's like that much more. She's that much more quick to tune in. Something's off, and he is that much more withdrawn and extra careful about hiding stuff from her. Like he's even more yes. off. So all these things are interrelating perfectly. Like in a way, the deaf girls made them the way they are. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. And luckily, Katie Mixon is around at crucial points. Ah, <laughs> I love the reveal uh, in the scene that you're talking about, Tom, because it, it happens that that scene where I take my boots off, I still whisper, happens right after um, Dewart. He delivers Dewart to Nat, who is Katie Mixon, <laughs> yeah. and she's standing there in the headlights, glowering. Yeah, and that's what happens when he delivers Dewart to his wife late at night after they've been drinking. And so he goes home. Now Curtis goes home, and he's taking off his boots quietly. And you think, oh, he's he's sneaking in so his wife doesn't know. Right, right. Yeah. And you immediately understand when she like snuggles up under his arm while he's looking at Hannah. Oh no, that's not their relationship. Yeah, this, yeah. And you get this whole different idea. Oh, and and that plays back to just a few minutes before where. Where DeWart has talked about, uh, we're thinking about a three-way, and and you, you understand. Oh, okay, yeah, these are these are two. There's such different relationships, and they're built so beautifully. So before we get around to talking about Michael Shannon, some uh, let's talk about some of the supporting cast. Of course, I think Katie Mixon needs to be in more movies. Kelly Wan, it sounds like you're on board with me on that. Yeah, I like. <laughs> she just cheers me up. Me too. You know what? I'm so happy when I see Katie. Yeah. And it's I not guess. in a it's not in a lascivious way like you. I just it's both. It's I can do more than one way. Well, she's kind of she's kind of like funny looking and endearing. I I just loved her in Eastbound and Down. So I'm so happy to see her in movies. She's adorable. She's yeah. inherent, objectively adorable. Like, and as um, we as, as you, we noted in Drive Angry three three D, uh, she should have you know when she been in the whole movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Tom, do you giggle when she shows up on screen? It, uh, invariably, yes. I Why? smile cheerfully. Dingus and I. So Dingus and I accidentally went to the same screening of this, and uh, there there were went in this entire theater, and there were enough folks there. When Katie Mixon appeared, two people in the theater giggled. Pretty sure I'm one of them, and I'll leave. They've seen her topless. The other oh, one. Yeah, sorry. By the way, that's, that's she not, she, she's not topless and eastbound and down. Yes, she is. Kelly Wan, do you not know when you were seeing a body double? It's her whole face. It's this whole, whole shot. No, no, you do not see her face. I, I, I'm not saying I pay attention to this kind of thing, but no, you did not see Katie Mixon top, topless and Eastbound and Down. Stop ruining my fabricated memory. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, we're all fans here, I think, of Shea Wiggum. Actually, Kelly One, you probably don't even know who Shea Wiggum is, do you? Uh, you probably think I'm talking about an actress. Why don't you hum a few bars? No, he's he's seen it. I think he's seen Shea Wiggum. What, what has he seen him in? He's seen oh, Splinter. 
Cutting one is not seen Splinter. Fuck Splinter. What do you do these fucking movie titles? <laughs> you know, maybe the whole fucking tree. Why do you get a tiny shard of something? It's like Shotgun Story sounds like an anthology, so I don't see like, oh, because now i got to watch three different movies. Some will be good. Some won't be as good. By the way, watching Shotgun Stories and getting the reveal of the title over the course of the film is a really great pleasure. Yep. Right, that's all I'm going to say. Yep. Also, it's stories of a building, right? Is that it? It's like fifth floor shotgun? No? What? <laughs> no, it's it's where it's how you get the passenger seat when you're <laughs> riding with someone. Fine uh, riding bitch. What what about uh that's not that's not shotgun thing. It's bitch is even worse than shotgun and Anton and Shigur will will tell you about that. Uh what about Ray McKinnon? You guys Ray McKinnon fans? Yeah, he's awesome. Who is he? <laughs> <laughs> Because he's a he'll, he'll warn actress. you that he'll whip your ass, and then he will whip your ass. And then oh wait, that's uh, the uh, preacher from Deadwood. Oh, that's right. You know what? I guess that is how a lot of people take know him. that chick. Yeah, yeah, he gets it bad in that show. Spoiler alert. There's a really terrible movie with uh, Hal Gurney, oh, Holbrook, Linda, uh, and Mia Wasikowska. By the way, I've since <laughs> had to pronounce her name. Uh, uh, but Ray McKinnon, so uh, uh, Hal Holbrook is an old man retiring, and Mia Wasikowska is uh, his, not his grand, is it his granddaughter? Is his granddaughter? Anyway, Ray McKinnon is the uh, intolerant redneck uh, who maybe is going to turn violent in That Evening Sun is the name of the movie. Uh, and it's a great Ray McKinnon performance in a really crappy movie. But I loved, even just for one scene, I loved him showing up with that, you know, I'll come over there and remind you what it's like to get your ass whipped. And, and that awkward hug that they do and and that he yeah. turns over his dog to him. Uh, just a great supporting cast. So did did either of you recognize the woman playing Kendra, the counselor? I don't think you guys watch the show that I know her from. Well, she's Is it the apprentice. She's been in a, a few different things, hasn't she? I mean, oh, so you did. I only know her from one thing, and it's a TV show, which I'm a little reluctant to admit because I do sometimes watch TV. But she's Andre Brower's wife in Men of a Certain Age, and she's really good on that show. So I was really glad to see her show up in a little tiny part. What do you know her from, Dingus? Uh, I think I accidentally know her from watching from my wife watching the practice. Her name is Lisa Gay Hamilton, and she's she's also in Jackie Brown, and um. But I think I remember her from seeing the practice. Okay. We're not talking about the game. We're talking about the practice. <laughs> Kelly one, what uh, supporting actors did you do, caught your eye? Uh, I, I have a theory for the one that I'll bet caught your eye, Kelly Wand. You ready? Uh, yeah, go. Get, do your guess. Uh, the rather tall blonde woman who shows up to pay Jessica Chastain like 80 bucks for some dresses that, that she made. <laughs> <laughs> I bet Kelly Wan's going to remember that woman. That's Loretta Swit, right? <laughs> <laughs> or Sally Kellerman. I think it's Very good, Kelly Wand. Uh, but she's a little chunkier. <laughs> but, you know. Who the hell is she? I don't know. I was just—I remember Kelly Wand. Who was it? When we watched the original Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, Kelly Wand, for some reason, actually maybe it was you too, Dingus, you guys called out some random blonde actress who I thought was completely nondescript. Uh, as her friend, yeah, yeah, like <laughs> see, I don't what. <laughs> so anyway, I'm now on the lookout. Like when I'm watching a movie, I'm like, is that? I, I bet the so, like random blonde actress number twelve is going to catch Kelly Wan's eye. There's a, it's like a hot blonde statuesque friend in uh, what's the John Travolta Lily Tomlin movie? Moment by moment, you're on your own. Like yeah, I can't help you there. 
Oh, you're you're having sex with that kid, that beach bum strip. That chick's hot too. I it's, like the forty-five-year-old blue Beverly Hills sugar mama. For those of you in the LA area, please email this podcast. <laughs> I could use. Uh, uh, you could use. It's, it's a twofer. Uh, Kelly Wan, so you called him Thomas Hayden Church. Uh, are you familiar with? Have you seen Michael Shannon in other movies? Like, does he? He looks like a gangster. He's, I've seen him as a gangster, right? Wasn't he in uh, Billy Bathgate or something? He does. He's on Boardwalk Empire. Like, he definitely. Right, right. He's a he's a character. I think he's commonly. Like he's done a lot of stuff, and you see him as in character actor parts, and he'll play like rednecks a lot, and and I guess gangsters. Yeah, um, I wouldn't be surprised if he was on Deadwood, for instance. So he doesn't normally play like this kind of guy. He's like sort of closed off, like the Heath Ledger guy in Brokeback Mountain, where he's like talking. It's just like I don't want to. He, he everything makes him feel exposed. That's what this character feels like. He's just worried about showing too much emotion. Uh, well, he he does no, he does play like I think he was nominated for an Academy Award for what I thought was a really like sort of bad performance as a schizophrenic in Revolutionary Road. Did either of you see that? Holy cow! I saw part of it. But wasn't ever... he, wasn't he nominated for that dingus? Yeah, he was. I didn't realize he was playing a schizophrenic because that sheds awful light. I mean, it doesn't shed awful light. It ma- it makes what he's doing here so much greater. Well, that's the thing is he he normally and I can almost see why Jeff Nichols would think, yeah, let's get Michael Shannon because Michael Shannon gets hired to play crazy people a lot. And it's uh, I mean, it, it can be effective, but a lot of times the material serves him poorly. So I'll mention a couple of movies, Revolutionary Road, in which he was nominated for, for being a crazy dude. And he's it's terrible. Uh uh, he just did an awful, awful, awful Werner Herzog movie called My Son, My Son, What Have Ye, Have Ye Done? about a guy who hacks up his mother with a samurai sword uh, and then is involved in a police standoff. And it's terrible, and he's awful in it. Uh, I think a lot of folks might recognize him from World Trade Center, where he's like this guy who shows up to clean up the rubble and then decides he's going to go join the Marines and fight in Iraq. Uh, and that they sort of portray him as this slightly off kilter kind of guy there. Uh, the one where he's so over the top and it's so bad is a William Friedkin movie. And I think I want to say it's based on a stage play, but I don't know if it's because it is based on a stage play or because it feels like it's based on a stage play because it takes place in one hotel room. But he's in a movie with Ashley Judd called Bug where they both just hole up in a hotel room and freak out over the top, cranked up to 11 crazy. Friedkin. Uh, it's it's awful. I mean, it's definitely that post jumping the shark Friedkin stuff. Um, but I think it's a little unfair. And, and this movie, I mean, God, I hope he gets a nomination for this because he really deserves it because he is so good at being a normal guy. And for the best example of that, there's a little indie film called The Missing Person, which, by the way, has so much more to do with 9-11 than Oliver Stone's terrible World Trade Center. But I recommend a, a kind of a weird indie detective movie called The Missing Person, which has Michael Shannon as a private detective hired by Amy Ryan. And their their little courtship in The Missing Person is so adorable. Uh, and he never does his crazy thing in The Missing Person, and he doesn't need to. Uh, he's like the cool sort of detached uh, private eye character in that um, but I was just so glad to see him given this role, and, and good Lord, I just hope great things come for him out of this. 
Me too. I just loved watching him deal with his family. I mean, I've said this several times so far, but this family is amazing. And the way that Jessica Chastain and Michael Shannon build it along with, uh, crap, I just blanked on her name. Tova. Tova, Tova something. Tova Hunter, maybe. I don't know. Racist. Tova Stewart. I'm sorry. Um, it's, it's beautiful. And the, the little moments he has, including that moment where, with his brother, Kyle, where he, he, you know, Kyle, like, gives him a little, you know, like, punch on the shoulder and walks away. And then he, he sort of calls him back for that hug. I mean, I love that. I love that, that whole scene with Kyle. Um, what's that actor's name again, Tom? The guy from Oh Brother? Ray McKinnon. Ray McKinnon. Thank you, Ray McKinnon. Um, I love the way that went. I don't, I don't know that I buy that that guy's seven years older than he is. <laughs> um, but I just love the way Michael Shannon, deals with those quiet moments he's so great um he's not he's not inscrutable i mean you see what he's feeling you see what he's going through um and you see you know that that, oh the scene oh this is a perfect scene the the scene where he wakes up and he's wet the bed and um and samantha is in the room trying to come to him and she's she's i'm sorry you're not feeling well but you need to drop the head (laughs) You giggled at that line too, Dingus. By the way, well, I, I just so much of what she does reminds me of of a well organized woman that I I live with, who I'm uh, uh, related to by marriage, who would who would say to me, "Okay, can you deal with it? All right, here's the plan: boom, 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 boom." Uh, but that little scene in the in the bedroom reminds me of of an improv that you would give a couple of actors. You'd say, "Okay, you're in the bed. Mm. You don't want her to come to your side of the bed. Okay, you're at the front of the room. You want to come to his side of the bed." go and and that's all they have and these are two masters who are showing you that improv he's got his reasons for not wanting her to come close to him and she's got her reasons for she needs to leave but she also needs to comfort him and she needs to make sure he's okay and all of those things where she's constantly saying i'll cancel this and stay home with you and he says no i'm fine go but there's so much internal tension within those lines. Yeah. He is so good at that, and she's so good at giving it back to him. They are just fantastic together. Dingus, what is the line that she gives him that you giggled at? Which what, – what? Where, 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 where she reproaches him when he's, uh, after, when he's trying to get her to not come to him when he's in the bed. After he's oh, she, the bed. She, says, she says, I'm sorry you're not feeling bad, but you need to drop the attitude. Okay, Dingus, I want you right now to deny that that line has been spoken to you in your own marriage. Uh, I said it. I'm the one who said this line. <laughs> I could just so see you being told that thing is. <laughs> is he a wetter? <laughs> well, I don't know about specifically for that. Just, that explains a lot. It explains the lisp. Well, I also I also love how in the, in the scene with the doctor he he says the bed was wet. He doesn't say I wet. The yes. Bed. I mean yes. he's just really good in that scene with the doctor too, where he said, you know, I don't have. A and, and it wound having to say all these things he hates. And again, let's let's give Jim Nichols credit as the writer who has worked with Michael Shannon before. I mean, I think this is one of these fantastic director-actor relationships that uh, that that you can just see. I mean, Michael Shannon is great, but good lord, Jim Nichols knows how to support his actor, and and vice versa. Uh, I love that about this movie. Um, I love that one of the first things he does is go to the library and get a book on mental illness. <laughs> He's like, all right, I'm snapping. Let's see here. What do I got? All right, I got two of the fives. It's pretty, like he's super organized about it. I, love- I, I was glad we didn't get an internet research montage. Oh, God. <laughs> Set to what music? <laughs> Where he's holding like a pen in his mouth. 
Man. Uh, Dingus, are you going to say anything about the soundtrack? Because as I'm watching movies, I now wonder, will Dingus hate the soundtrack? That's a game I play with myself during a movie. Which uh, one? I'm, gla- I'm glad you're letting me talk about this. The guy's name is Dave Wingo. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he Wingo did- ate my baby. Sorry. <laughs> Wingo ate Kelly Wan's baby. Um, he did. He's done a lot of uh, David Gordon Green soundtracks. He did George Washington. He did a couple unfortunate movies called um, All the Real Girls and Snow Angels. Uh, I, I love. I you know I, I made a joke about the song at the end, which is very much this crouching tiger song, like we're going to sing about shelter at the end. But I loved the music. It's perfectly atmospheric as far as I'm concerned. And it, and it isn't there in a couple of key scenes where it's just a couple of characters talking and you don't have any music. So I thought, I thought, I thought that, I thought the music was perfect in this movie. Uh, the, uh, the end credits song, Dingus, uh, was done by a fellow named Ben Nichols. And I, I suspect it's no coincidence that he shares the same last name as the director. Uh, ben Nichols, if you watch Shotgun Stories, one of the plot elements in Shotgun Stories is that one of the characters has, uh, they spend a lot of time driving around in a van, and in this van, the tape player doesn't work. It'll just randomly turn on and off at times. So there are moments in Shotgun Stories where the tape player belonging to this sort of lower-class redneck in Little Rock, Arkansas, every now and then turns on, and it has to play snap matches of generic rock music that some guy in Little Rock, Arkansas might listen to. All of those songs in Shotgun Stories are credited to Ben Nichols. (laughs) (laughs) Very nice. Uh, So uh, let's talk about the ending. Uh, Let's talk about where the movie ends up. And I'm curious to get you guys' thoughts because I have some pretty strong thoughts about what we did and didn't see and what does and doesn't matter and how it is or is not ambiguous. Uh, who wants to go first? I'm the dumbest, so I should go last, so I can <laughs> say, yeah! <laughs> well, Kelly Wand, I'm curious, what did you think of, uh, you, you sort of joked about it a bit in your synopses, but what, it, what did you think about where the movie ended up? Was it at all confusing to you? Did you think it was like a, a sort of a twist? Did it feel like it betrayed anything that you had seen in the movie? Uh, how did you feel about that last scene? It didn't betray anything we'd seen, but it also made me think, wait, so, okay, he dreamed about the storm, but he also dreamed a bunch of stuff that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Although his friend did turn on him, which in a way was like a grandfather paradox, because he kind of made the friend turn on him <laughs> because of the dream. But the wife never turned on him, and the dog never turned on him. Red got fucked over. Poor Red. And also, is this storm like... I mean, a storm doesn't happen all over the world. It's like, that's that would be like a meteor or something. But if there's like tornadoes, and they go to Lake Myrtle. <laughs> I don't think it's a lake. Oh. Didn't they call it Lake Myrtle? Uh, Myrtle, Myrtle Beach. Beach. Myrtle yeah. Beach, sorry. I see, I see, I saw Lake Mungo last night. <laughs> uh, okay, so let me, well, um... And now I'm used to because Serious Man has got me thinking, oh, whirlwind, Job, God, whirlwind, right, whirlwind. Right. So it's like now every time I, those things are kind of cemented into my consciousness. Mm-hmm. I forgot what I was going to say, but it was well, something really fascinating. Well, and, can I ask you? And I think here's what the movie asks you to consider. Uh, and Dingus, I want to know what you think. Did did this really happen? Yeah. Is the ending an actual event? What what the final scene? This happened and frailty happened. You heard me. 
<laughs> right. Let's bring in Stephen King movies. Matthew McConaughey was the other brother, and then the agent was the guy. Uh, so you did feel, though, that, that the final scene was something that, that actually happened in the real world? Yes. So, so the, the point of the movie was that he wasn't crazy? Or that right. he wasn't but also keep in mind, I'm the dumbass who you told, dude, the end of the rapture is her snapping. <laughs> so I always assume the apocalypse is like, see, the crazy apocalypse. Like, to me, what's the guy's name? Harold Camping, the, the dumbass Yosemite Sam right. picture guy uh, who kept the money that they gave him because he goes, well, yeah, I didn't, you know, it's. It's the real money, so I don't see why I should give it back. Or something. Okay, but this, I mean, part of what I love about Take Shelter is that I, I don't feel the ending is ambiguous, but I do feel that it is open to interpretation. And I, of course, have the correct interpretation, but <laughs> I, I, I want to hear what other people's interpretations are as well. Uh, all, all right, Dingus, how do you feel about what Kelly Wan has just claimed? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I don't know what he claimed, so I'm going to have to. <laughs> All right. you, my work here is done, then. <laughs> I got what I wanted. Why don't you go ahead and jump in, Tom, and then I'll go. Well, I really do. I feel that uh, the, it, at first, it's one of those things that I see, and at first I'm like, you know, this is just Jeff Nichols trying to just fool with us. And But I think it makes perfect sense. I think it obviously didn't really happen. That the, the ending is clearly... That the movie is clearly about someone dealing with mental illness. Uh, that uh, if you consider what you have just seen, if you weigh the uh, the internal evidence for what's going on, if you look at what makes a more interesting dramatic choice, this is clearly about a, a man who's dealing with mental illness, who's dealing with contemporary stress, and it's this kind of love story about how his family sticks with him. Uh, and it doesn't destroy his family. Uh, it's ultimately like a hopeful movie, but I don't feel it's a movie about an apocalypse. Uh, I don't feel that, that anything Michael Shannon has experienced is real on an objective level. Uh, whoa, 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 whoa. What about he goes in the shelter, he comes out, and people are picking up chairs and branches. Well, Hello. That's, that's an important point is that that scene conflates him having a dream where he's holding his daughter with the his daughter goes out in the street you know that's his anxiety dream is his daughter's going to go out in the street and he runs to pick her up and he sees the clouds he sees the stream of birds and then he wakes up into his wife and he hears the sirens and then he wakes up into his wife waking him up because the sirens are going off for a tornado warning and they go down into the shelter that right there is an example. We, we have conflated his dream with the reality of an actual storm. It's a mundane storm. What we discover when he wakes up is that it was just a windstorm. There was apparently no even tornado damage. That's what happens during a tornado warning is, you know, there's the conditions are right for one. Maybe a funnel cloud was sighted. The sirens go off. Um, so, of course, it's natural that there would be branches blown everywhere, but there was no destruction. Uh, I thought maybe it was because he'd gone crazy and torn off the branches and knocked over the stuff, and they just have a sign, eh, crazy guy's gone crazy again. Kelly Wanda, all the interpretations, that's certainly one of them. Thank you. See? <laughs> Take that, dingus. But anyway, so I feel that, uh, you know, did is it more interesting to suppose that we saw a movie about a guy who had a premonition about a tsunami uh, an oil, uh, you know, a rain of oil, an oil spill, basically, and multiple tornadoes hitting Myrtle Beach, 
Or did we see a movie about a character dealing with mental illness? And I wait think a minute. What does the word okay. interesting have to do with anything? Yeah, I got to call you on that. You you okay. know better than that. Hold on a second. All right. What 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 do you want to know? Apocalypses aren't interesting to no, me. No, Only but, psychosis, Mister. No, no, okay. Well, no. let me put it this way. Whether or not I, it is I, interesting it, or not shouldn't weigh sure. on your interpretation of what the movie means. Okay. Well, let me put it this way. I do think interesting matters. I mean, to me, it certainly matters. But I think that okay. Take Shelter is a character study and not an apocalypse movie. And, and I feel that a character study is, in a way, inherently more interesting, and that that's what Take Shelter plays as. You know, it, it plays with this idea, is this an apocalypse or is this a guy dealing with mental illness? I feel a more interesting, a, a more relevant to me uh, and to people who see this kind of movie, like a more relevant movie would be the character study part uh, than an apocalypse movie. So okay. I, 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 if it turns out to be an apocalypse movie, how is it not still a character study? Yeah, why can't it be both, Mr. Uh, exclusive? Haha, ha, gotcha. Well, because then it's uh, all of this stuff about him struggling with madness is a fake out. He is not well, mad. He's just no, a, he's just unlucky because he's insane and right. He's a normal <laughs> guy who is visited by visions, uh, and he's and not so a what? Because think of what he learns when he goes to visit his mother. Right, which she goes, I don't have the dreams. You're really fucking nuts, dude. That's what she tells him. Which is the internal support, by the way, for the fact that this is a movie about a guy dealing with mental illness. With a more plausible explanation, and the movie more supported by internal evidence, is that he's dealing with, inter- with, uh, with mental illness. And that, that's what you get, I think, from the scene where he goes to visit his mother. All right, Tom, I'm going to give you movie titles. You tell me if they were mental illness or real ends of the world. Twelve Monkeys. Uh, pass. The Road. Pass. Knowing. Mental illness. Uh, into the Kansas world. <laughs> was he really dead or was he a mannequin? So, so the thing is, do you disagree? I mean, do you feel that, that there was an actual like apocalypse at the end of, uh, of uh, Take Shelter? Well, let's just deal with the, um, the filmmaker's language as far as dreams are concerned within the structure of the film. Sure. Now... Dealing with the dreams, I mean, the, the actual dreams that we see and how the filmmaker um, communicates those dreams to us. Mm-hmm. Does that final scene make sense as a dream based on all of those other dreams that we've seen? Yes, absolutely. Can you, can you explain to me how? Because I think that that's not true based because, on what we see from sure. character perspective and lighting. I think it's absolutely true, and I think it's the the core of the character arcs in the movie. Uh, ultimately, the uh, Michael Shannon's affliction is his insecurity about being able to provide for his family, about his own infirmity, about about losing his daughter, about not being able to protect them, about not being able to take care of them and, and be with them. Uh, what his final dream shows is that even though he's still, I, I think, mentally ill and afflicted by this, is that he is with his family. That his daughter is not ripped from his arms. His wife is not going to, he does not have doubts about what his wife is going to do. She nods and she is as convinced as him. She stands by him while he stands in front of the tsunami and these, these tornadoes. I think that the sort of overall character arc is him going from doubting that he's going to be with his family to still having this mental illness and his family being with him while he has this mental illness. Because the final, I mean, 
does the movie go on for 10 minutes too long? Could we have ended when they come out of the shelter and you realize that he was imagining all this? And I would say no, because what we still have to learn is that he has a serious affliction. It's going to remove him from his family. You know, the worst case scenario, I guess, would be the end of the world. But the next worst case case scenario that he is going to have to deal with what his mother is dealing with takes place. But the final piece of information we have is Jessica Chastain in his dream, essentially nodding with him and him feeling comforted that she is still with him, him knowing him losing that insecurity about his family being by his side. Uh, point of order, uh, I just want to say that the daughter is the one who first sees the storm coming uh, and points it out to him, and then he turns around and sees it. Well, okay, she, so that sees, she sees it in the bird dream, too, though. Right. So does that answer your question, though, Dingus? Because I do feel that that's a sort of an important bit of information, is w- the distinction in this dream is that Jessica Chastain nods. She's like, yes, you know, she is with him in his perception of the, this, this disaster. Uh, and she doesn't nod like, holy shit, there's a fucking storm coming nod. Right, right, like, exactly. Yes, not- dear, you and your little thing with the whirlwind. When it's kind of hyper-realized. I mean, it's kind of like a hyper-reality. It's this dream reality. And one of the one of the brilliant things about Take Shelter is is Jim Nichols doesn't do anything like – and I was watching for this. He doesn't do anything like there's a special cinematography for the dreams or the music is only in the dreams because it's true to, I think, this issue of mental illness is that it's not you now you can't divide. Right. Exactly. Your perception of reality is skewed. You can't neatly compartmentalize what's madness and what's reality. Uh, and so I think that's crucial to the way the dream sequences are shot is that you can't necessarily tell when they're a dream sequence. Um, so, Dingus, I hope I'm not dancing around your point because I want to know what, what you think and if that what I'm saying works for you. Uh, but does that kind of address what you're talking about or what you're asking? A little bit. I, I'm really when I asked the question, I was really just talking about filmmaker language. Um, uh-huh. But but I, I want to kind of take a little bit of a tangent here and then get back to that, because okay. because one of the things I love about this film is how is is something that you just said, Tom. That um, that a lot of times you're sitting there wondering, uh, am I in a dream or not? But you get a feeling for that pretty quickly. And one of the things I thought about was how we both responded to uh, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, the original one, uh, in that it, that film lets you know early on whether or not this is in the character's mind or not. Uh, and this film does not. And I, and I love both of those choices. I love how this kept me on the edge of my seat. Is this in the character's head or not? And you think in that scene with Shea Wiggum, uh, with, uh, Dewart, where he hears the thunder and Dewart doesn't that, oh, this is the definitive line that this is all in his head or is it not? And it feels like when we get to the end that it's a blend of the two, because I don't think that you see in the dreams that we're talking about, and this is where I'm talking about filmmaker language, in the dreams that we have throughout the film, and there's specific dreams, we can all point to each dream that we're talking about, mm-hmm. that you have a moment where the other character sees something from her perspective, where Jessica Chastain, where Sam sees the oil falling on her hand, where we get that that shot of Sam, apart from uh, Curtis and Hannah, coming to the window apart from them. She is not in his perspective. She's not in him. I mean, all of the other dream sequences have him at the center, and Mm -hmm. she's coming to the window and seeing this, and then you have that awesome reflection shot of the of the funnel clouds going down behind her that very much um quiet earth kind of shot 
and it feels to me that that last scene is not a part of the way the filmmaker is expressing dreams earlier in the film. So wait, you're saying because Jessica Chastain is in it? I'm not sure I understand how you were setting that scene apart from the earlier dream. Because because of perspective and who, uh, when when it's his dream, it's his perspective, and right. he's the main character of that dream. And well, when we're in that beach scene in Myrtle Beach at the ocean, um, we we shift to her inside of the cabin or inside of the of the lodge, and she comes to the window. And she sees the rain fall on her hand. That's not from his perspective. She right. looks to him, and he looks back to her. She looks to him, he looks back to her, and then he moves behind her. I mean, there, there's a, it's a very different thing than from when she's in the kitchen and she doesn't, she doesn't attack. There's nothing, he, he says no to her and she doesn't go for the knife or the, the pickaxe scene that he describes or Hannah being taken from the truck or the dog. Or, or Hannah at the window when the furniture floats. He's in the middle of all of those things, and you don't have that in that last scene. And I think you're making my point, though, which is that's the character arc. Is The character arc is about this character's insecurity about his own madness and how by the time the movie is over, his family is standing by him in that madness. Not that he has been vindicated and he's not mad and the world is ending. It is that he is indeed mad. He does have mental illness, but his family is there with him for that. But he doesn't get to magically transport into her brain because the filmmaker has not set that up at all. It's I mean, like Toy this Story is, 3 thing, kind of. This is, is from her perspective. We're seeing things from her perspective. I know. I, that's I, Again, I think that makes my point is that, uh, you know, it's not it's a point of view shot in that the, the filmmaker needs to establish that Jessica Chastain is experiencing these things that he has experienced. Uh, right. That she is there with him, but it, it, Dingus. So just to sort of to to get to down to brass tacks, are you then saying that you think that there is an actual apocalypse at the end of the movie? Like, is that your interpretation? Yes, definitely. Okay, okay. Fair a enough. guy, the guy who came out of the theater ahead of me said, so he was right all along to his girlfriend, and she like laughed, like, <laughs> really? You thought that? So yeah, Dingus, I could. I think this is not alone in this. Like, oh no, no, and I don't doubt it. And that's, I think, a, a strength of the movie. But boy, do I disagree with Dingus. Okay. Uh, yeah. I think I think I agree with Dingus, but I I wish you were right. <laughs> because when, so, when they so come so out of guys... the shelter, I kind of th I thought when they went to the 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 super psychiatrist office, the Doctor Shannon's, he's the best ever office. I thought, isn't the movie over already? He's on his medication and vacation, too, Tom. He should be having less... Uh, Ooh, good point, Kelly. He's been cured. He shouldn't be where it's off. There's no evidence. I mean, you don't even know that he's gone to Myrtle Beach. You don't even know the psychiatrist is real. <laughs> this movie might not even have happened. That's the thing. podcast might not even be happened. The dream is that he's gone to Myrtle Beach. The psychiatrist is saying, yes, go to Myrtle Beach. But I think that's, for, according to my interpretation, that would be the last real-world scene that we see, is his realization that he's going to have to leave his family. That, oh, like his sister, oh so you're, you, are you saying that you don't even think Myrtle Beach happened? I'm saying that he's dreaming about Myrtle Beach. I mean, if you say that Myrtle Beach happened, then yes, of course, the tsunami and all the tornadoes and the motor oil rain happen, because all of that is part and parcel of the Myrtle Beach scene. There's no cut where they're hanging out in Myrtle oh. Beach, and oh, look, 
now it's uh, he's now having a dream in Myrtle Beach. The final reality is him being told you have to be taken away from your family. You uh, you know this is going to happen. But the final dream is him reconciling to the fact that his family is with him. That he he no longer has that anxiety about losing his family. You know this is ultimately a movie about a wife who who decides to and who has the strength to stick with a mentally ill husband. And I think the final scene is a dream that he is having where he he realizes that fact. Now, be honest. Did you just come up with that? Because I really like that, but but I don't believe that that's what you were saying earlier. No, it's totally what I was saying earlier, because when Uh, I... All right. Uh, Okay, that's fine. I I really like that idea (laughs) that that whole final scene is a dream, but I don't think it's supported by how the filmmaker has set up previous dreams. But I like the idea. Okay, I think Tom's high, but I like Tom high. Well, the question is, have you seen a movie about this character arc that I just described, where the character learns that he's going to have to be away from his family, but his family is with him? Or did you see a movie about seven tornadoes, a tsunami, and a motor oil rainstorm in Myrtle Beach? And his family is with him and decided to be with him, and now they're all going to be together. I mean, I don't know why you're you're making a divorce between these two things. You keep you keep saying it's it's either an interesting movie or it's a movie about an apocalypse, and I disagree. Well, I, I mean, if you thought you saw Deep Impact, that's cool. I, I just think that Take Shelter is far better than a movie like Deep Impact or 2012. Or you, you know, if if your point of the movie, if you want to make a movie, uh, all right. But why is that worse though? Like, let's say Dingus is right. You're saying it's not as good. No, now it's Deep Impact because of that. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you're going to end your movie at the end of the world. You're just going to have this 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 uh, this drama about a guy struggling with mental illness that is ultimately about the end of the world and not mental illness. No, I just, no, it can be both. I yeah. See, what Sting is saying is, like, the guy is mentally ill, but he's also right. He's, he's like he's uh, not, he's hotel. struggling with with the fear of <laughs> mental illness as well. It might not be that he's mentally ill. So That's all the stuff Kath, right, all the stuff with Kathy Baker is a red herring? It's no, about it's about you're the guy who's right, and it still doesn't matter because the world's too fucking stupid to listen to you. Okay. And you're screwed anyway and enjoy. But, hey, you had a nice day at the beach. But I think it can be a hybrid of those things. I mean, I think that's what's so wonderful no. about that Kathy Baker scene. Don't you think, Dingus, it is important to decide whether or not the world ends at the end of Take Shelter? No, because fuck the world. <laughs> Speak about these people. I mean, you talk about it. No, no, no. I, th- I think it's important to decide. I agree with you, Tom. Okay. But I don't think that if I decide that, it makes me love Deep Impact and not love this. I'm movie. just. I know. Please. I'm because just I understand. But but Tom? I think he can have a certain level of mental illness, and the movie can be saying he's in tune with this these visions that he's getting. That that's part of the point of the movie, and I like that interpretation as well. But I also love the idea which I hadn't, it hadn't even occurred to me, that this whole final scene in Myrtle Beach, the entire thing, is all a dream. I like that. I just don't think it's supported by the way the filmmaker portrays dreams earlier. I, I oh, do oh, like oh, your interpretation, though. Okay. okay. Uh, you can have any way, but I noticed Tom never thinks anything's real, and I always think everything's real, <laughs> including the fucking tree and the fountain. Like, I even think the fucking conquistadors are real, and no one thinks that's real. I'm the only I, idiot in the, on the planet who thinks all three arcs in the fountain are true, man. He was writing about the past. I I, have, I struggle with this in a lot of movies, and some movies I end up having to let go of it. Like, I think of 28 weeks later, there, there's a, a lot of... Difference. I think that was real. I swear to God, I think the dad's in the fucking sewer, and that was part no, of his... I know, I know, I know. And I had to let go of my it's-not-real interpretation, but I, I am convinced. I mean, I just feel like... 
I feel like me and Jim Nichols were really in tune here. <laughs> and I just, I think you guys might be able, it might take you a little while to come around, but I just cannot, uh, I, I just. We feel, don't think we're stupider. That's the difference. I'm not saying stupid. I mean, I do love how it, it, it can end ambiguously. Sure. And it really is a thoughtful ending that it leaves it to you to think up, you know, what, how do you interpret this? What does this mean to you? Pan's Labyrinth, by the way, is a, is a perfect example of that. I mean, I think Guillermo del Toro is so, in Pan's Labyrinth, the, a huge, 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 important point of the movie is that none of it is real, but I think it's entirely possible to watch and enjoy and appreciate Pan's Labyrinth and and not share that interpretation. I don't feel the, and I'm I'm just being facetious, but I don't feel the quote-unquote correct interpretation is necessary to enjoy or appreciate the movie. And I think the same way here. uh, I was going to say, in Pan's Labyrinth, though, I got that sense after the movie, I go, this could work exactly as well either way. It either all really happened and everything in the movie works, right. or it was all bullshit and it all still works perfectly just the way it's structured. In this, I think Ding is saying, hey, she sees oil on her hands. That supports your case, you think? But to me, I think it makes Ding just look like his thing. Like it, that, that well, no, that, I mean, that's where I kind of disagree, because in plenty of the dreams, somebody else sees something before he sees it. Uh, like, like that's not. I mean, the point of view shift. Wait, wait. I don't. Uh, when, when? What are you talking about? The little girl looking out the window. You don't see what uh, she sees. You don't see you what don't she see until see. She, until he gets there. And when the she, little girl, when Hannah girl, runs out on the road and sees the birds, you don't see them until he looks. Uh, she's yes, you do. You see the birds. You see the storm. The uh, the uh, not until he looks. I, 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 might, I mean, you know, it might also be true of. And that might be, you know, the, what bolsters your opinion or your your interpretation is that the uh, the revelation of the storm is in a reflection, and not from her, from Jessica Chastain's point of view. So and it's his, Michael, it's Michael Shannon looking because that reflection is such a gorgeous shot. You know, that sort of bolsters your interpretation because it might well, be and, his point of view. Well, I, exactly. Why would why would Jim Nichols do the shot that way than this traditional like sweeping quiet earth vista? Tom, exactly. Tom. that's absolutely right. And when you t- and also I'm thinking of the way um Curtis is on the beach with his daughter and and the way that is shot, it does have that feeling of some of those dream scenes. I mean, I'm not I'm not totally coming across, but I really feel like that, that there is that idea. I just hadn't even thought about that whole Myrtle Beach uh, sequence as being a dream. And I, well, and another I, thing, yeah, and you never see what the other character sees before Michael Shannon sees it. Sure. Like, he, you don't <laughs> except, see... Except for her, except for Justin seeing the rain on her hand, and there's right. a couple other things that she sees. I mean, I don't think that that scene really speaks in the same language as the other dream scenes. Also, Tom, his last expression isn't one of of happiness or like, oh, I've been vindicated. It's like, oh, man, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> so in your interpretation, it wouldn't be, oh, man, fuck. It would be like, oh, I still got my family. This is cool. I can At least I'm with them at the end. It's more like, oh, where's my fucking shelter? He doesn't look happy. He looks bummed and freaked out. Now where's this fucking movie going to take what is he, Kelly Wan, what has he just been told in the office about the shelter? Uh, it's dumb. No, that he has to leave it. That he has to divorce himself from the shelter. That's the first step in getting better. But that therapist is a dream he's having sent by the devil. <laughs> 
Dingus, help me. So I, you know what? I, I would, I, Dingus, you mentioned there's a director's commentary on Shotgun Stories. I would love to hear Jim Nichols talk more about this. Uh, so I, you know, I don't, maybe I'm wrong. And I certainly didn't come to this when I first saw it. I, this was a head scratcher for me on the whole drive home. And it was something I kind of feel like he asks you to puzzle out on your own. And I love that about this movie. Sure. The, the fact that we, we all three have different interpretations is an, a definite asset of Take Shelter. And I think the answers are in there. Like in some stuff you watch, you go, I'm not convinced the director knows. Like I watched Donnie Darko and I'm all, what's the fuselage about? So I listened to the director's commentary and I was like, see, he doesn't know what the fuck the fuselage is. He doesn't know anything. He's just right. slapping it all together. And so now I can't like Donnie Darko anymore. Right. right. Did he? Yeah. Uh, Kelly Wand, uh, so would you take the bullet and go see The Help for us and let us know how it's possible that Jessica Chastain and Bryce Dallas Howard can exist in the same movie. Can you do that? Yeah, because Lindsay Lohan's in blackface in my memory. Is... One, two, three, not only one, one, I'm sorry, I hope no one got cut off. I could easily do two hours on Take Shelter. Yeah. Yeah, but you know what? It's one of those movies I don't want to talk about because in a way it's like you're dissecting the butterfly instead of enjoying watching it fly around. I think and also, by the way, yeah, and, and, and F the trailer for this movie. Jeez, a Peter. Oh, really? I didn't see it. What was it? It gives away, all, you know what, you'll see it. You'll be like, I can't believe they're telling you that in the, and they're showing you that scene in, in the freaking trailer. So uh, let's, let's right. do a three by three. What do you guys think of that? And Kelly Wan, get that out of my face. <laughs> you used to like it in your face. You're not doing it right. Okay, I'm going to try this with Dingus. Dingus, get that out of my face. I don't have anything. In my face. You guys suck at, tra- at trailer recreations. Get your nose out of your face. Get your eyes out of my mouth and my hair. It's not get in your face. It's hand. in my hand. Get what's in your hand out of my face. Because you know what? We have a long way until Christmas. We can milk that like you wouldn't believe. Get it? Get it? <laughs> That's gross. <laughs> we want. We're not seeing that fucking movie. I'm not going to see another fucking movie of those two idiots. Isn't it? Isn't it a Christmas Day movie? What else? I don't want to see Sherlock Holmes CG slow mo bullshit. No more. No. But we uh, got the line. Kelly Wand, did you know that Numi Rapace is in it? Uh, I was promised Rachel McAdams and Fishnets in the first one. They jacked me out of that. So now why the fuck would I watch another movie that they're not going to show anything on? Uh, Numi Rapace might be in uh, Fishnets for all you know. <laughs> No mystery, no fishnets, no sale. Dingus, what is this week's three by three? These are your uh, top three makeup effects. Man, I don't know. I know one of them because fucking Tom. No, no, no. So many ways this could have gone. I mean, that's I. I love that about this three by three is that. That's what Tom says after we have sex. It's not ambiguous, but it's up for. Oh, I just I had no no shortage of stuff to come up with for this. Uh, all right, so I'll go first because I'm introducing next week's three by three. I tried to steer away from, and I, I, I tried to steer away from like big elaborate sequences that maybe Rob Bottin might have done that we talked a little bit about last week. And I don't want to steal anybody's thunder in case you guys picked that stuff. But those every- are creature effects. 
but a lot of them happen to people are like Rick Baker. You know what? I don't want to say anything because there's a lot we can talk about that I think might spoil someone else's list. But uh, what I went for are effects are, are just literally makeup on a person uh, and not any big elastic fantastical stuff. I didn't pick anything from the cantina scene. I'm sure that's on Dingus's list. Probably Dingus's are his three favorite creatures from the cantina. I'm guessing Hammerhead is number two, if not one. No, his name is Moma Nadon, Tom. Hammerhead's just his uh, shape. Wow, very good, Kelly Wand. So all of mine, you can recognize that there's people under the makeup. And it is literally makeup, as Dingus pointed out, and I love this about the list. It's got to all be practical effects. So I had a hard time not just doing scary stuff. Uh, like monster horror movies. As a, as a huge horror movie aficionado, that's immediately what I thought of. But I came up with one. Unfortunately, it's only my number three. My number one and two are horror movies. But my number three is not a horror movie. Uh, but I love about this makeup how much it reminds me of Edward Gorey, who's an illustrator I love. And it, it's, it's pretty much just eyeliner. But it's the way Gwyneth Paltrow looks in Royal Tenenbaums. Uh, you know, Margot Tenenbaum is this morose, glum character who just looks exactly like she came out of an Edward Gorey drawing. And part of it's the wardrobe. Part of it is how she's just slender and her hair. I don't know if we're counting hair as part of makeup, but that's a huge part of it. But it, a lot of it's in the eyeliner. So I love my Margot Tenenbaum makeup and Royal Tenenbaums. That's my number three. You're doing the Wes Anderson, and what's that give Dingus? Nothing. I don't know. Dingus is going to have to pick uh, the makeup that uh, the guy wore in Rushmore. Uh, what's what's his name uh, in Rushmore? <laughs> Bill Murray? <laughs> yeah, Bill, Bill Murray's makeup in, in Rushmore. I love, I love that. And you can, I think you can include hair as far as you're talking about makeup, and I'll talk about that in my number three. Um, but that's great. That's much more subtle than I went, and I love it. Okay. Well, a lot of mine, uh, I mean, I... After this, I'm not doing subtle anymore, uh, but that's I, I, that's my non-horror movie pick. So, Kelly Wand, what is your number three choice for makeup? I can't wait to see what you've done with this list. Uh, I'm going to bitch you right now. <laughs> okay. You ready to get bitched? Uh, rock and roll. Uh, I'm really, it's, I'm referring, okay, I'll do a line from the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, something in Lake Mungo ate my baby. Okay, well, that's my number two. <laughs> And that's why, and now it's kind of unfair because I told both of you guys before we recorded, look, if you haven't seen Lake Mungo by the time we tape, you, you need to because I'm going to spoil things. So my number two is definitely the makeup in Lake Mungo. Which uh, part, though? Uh, so we've all seen Lake Mungo. Okay, let's talk Lake Mungo. I, I want to say if you have not seen Lake Mungo, I do recommend it. It's a horror movie that I would argue is kind of a found footage movie, but really it's a, it's a you called it the best found footage movie. <laughs> I agree. It's it's shot as a documentary. I'll say that, but I think it's a found footage movie. Anyway, uh, if you haven't seen it, I recommend it. Uh, let's talk Lake Mungo. If you haven't seen it, fast forward. Uh, I don't know, ten minutes, because let's talk spoilers. That's not the one I'm talking about. In Lake Mungo? Yeah. That's the one you're talking about? That's the easy one. I would talk about the other one. I'll put a time code on on the, uh, on the thing. Telling, okay, we're starting at 136. Talking about Lake Mungo, go. All right. So, uh, yeah, so Kelly Wan, tell me your makeup effect from Lake Mungo, and I'll tell you my number two. Uh, my number three is the phone one. The phone you're, one. You're going to have to explain. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think, you don't know what I'm talking about. 
The one near the end of the movie. We're in spoiler oh, territory right now. Oh, yeah, yeah. The only people listening are people who have seen Lake Mungo. Please uh, see it and stop listening to this stupid bullshit that we're talking about. And then listen to it once you've seen it. They're, they're already gone, Kelly Wand. <laughs> but, okay, good. What's the phone scene? What on earth do you do? Because I'm, of course, talking about the corpse. Uh, right. Yeah, no, no. It, but you don't remember? The phone is the thing that she sees it coming towards her. On the phone, and then she buries it. It's the same it. thing. Oh. It's the same. Nah, it's not exactly the same. No, it's not, but it's built to be the same thing. So here's my here's my thing about Lake Mungo. Uh, it's a it's a fear of a corpse is kind of really universal. Uh, there's this great uh, I think it's Bava. What's that Italian horror? Lucio Bava. I can't think of his name. He did this horror anthology called The Black Cat, and one of them was about this woman who has to sit up with a, the corpse of a dead old lady all night. And steals a ring from the dead old lady, and then the corpse haunts her. And I remember that freaking me out as a kid, but I think it's universal, this fear of dead people. So Lake Mungo is going to be, of course, and you know this early on, about uh, a, a dead teenager. So early on in the movie, when you're watching the film footage of, of Alice Palmer's body being recovered from the, the lake, not Lake Mungo, a different lake, and that's kind of important, you get a glimpse of this bloated gray disfigured thing being carted off and you're like oh god and i mean you have that visceral reaction to it uh and that's plenty but then later on they're showing like footage like like the the uh coroner's photography of it uh. and it's really freaky and it's scary and it's it's i don't know i don't know if that's a puppet or but i i think it's a makeup effect i'm not sure but but it's just really doubly scary. And normally in a movie, you see that, especially a horror movie, and you're like, oh, God, it's going to open its eyes or it's going to come awake. But there's this weird sense in like Mungo of you're seeing a still photograph, so you're kind of reassured. But then what happens in the footage that they find – see what I did there? Uh, is that this corpse? This corpse walks towards you like it, it animates, Ugh. and this thing that you first saw a glimpse of and thought was freaky enough, and then you saw a long still shot of, but you felt this safe sense. Suddenly, it's walking slowly, inexorably out of the darkness, right up into your freaking face. Ugh. So I love that progression and how it plays into fear of corpses and, and its expression. Do you remember its? its yeah, I mean, it's just it, it's terrible. It's, and and you and it also how it only after the fact then introduces this this beautiful young actress playing uh, 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 Laura Palmer. Wait, what's I'm screwing it up with twin Alice. Alice, Alice, right, Alice. Right. Okay. Uh, then this beautiful young actress appears, and you see more of her. And you're making that whole connection between that beautiful girl is this gross corpse. So I just love how it plays on the fear of corpses and how it reveals itself over the course of the movie. Uh, so that's my number two. And now, so you're specifically though talking about the the animated version of it. Yes. Over the, of footage at the end. Okay. Because you don't you don't get a good look at it. Then they freeze frame it. <laughs> so you get a really good look at it. And it's like that's that close to you, and you're. It's. Uh, I'd bury my phone. I'd fucking burn my phone. I don't want to see that ever. <laughs> I'm bummed enough I saw it in a movie that was found. That's like the fucking creepiest found footage image ever. 
Thank you so much for hipping me to that movie. I'm never going to sleep again, you bastard. It's fucking horrifying. So Dingus was, was such a, a sissy about it. He was live blogging it on Facebook while he was watching. He was telling me, this is really scary. Yeah. So I, if I hadn't been, I had such a terrible cold over the course of the week. If I hadn't have been so sick, when D, Dingus was live blogging this, I would have been so tempted to like drive over to his house and just scratch on his the window of his oh, office. Oh, Oh, my God. I so wish I wasn't sick because I would have done that. And every one of the, the acting in the movie is so perfect. Like, it makes it so realistic and all the little twists like oh he forged the thing and then he doesn't see the other one oh. yep yep it uh, is the best i just wanted to say that is the best found footage movie you were so right and i wanted to incline to you for hipping me to that and making me see it good it's the greatest it, friend ever <laughs> it can be a tough sell because it has a goofy name and it's hard to explain too much about it without giving it away so so dingus you got to see it right oh yeah did you, of course, you, you know the- I did, since you right. check Facebook all the time, constantly, uh, even if you're sick. I'm so sick, I have to check Facebook and friend people. Uh, well, I don't know if you know this, when you do, I don't know what Facebook, when you tag me in a post in Facebook like you apparently did, I get sent an email for some stupid reason. That's right, that's why I tagged you, because I wanted to see if I could suss you out. And I ferreted <laughs> you. I totally ferreted you. Um, well, I love it. I love. I'm so happy that you uh, that you forced us to see it this week. Yeah. I love this movie, uh, and I'm keen on uh, debating whether or not it's found footage or just a film with found footage. And what? And I don't know that that really. I don't really care what the fuck that means. But I had this idea of what found footage meant, and right. I don't think that 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 is this. This no, is this is very much right. a documentary film with found footage. Okay. Mm, uh, well, the MacGuffin, if you will, is found footage. I mean, the right, footage that right. they find, and it and it introduces that so perfectly. I mean, it's such a as a documentary, it's such a great mystery story in a way that Catfish wished it could have been. Yeah, uh, and how it how it uses things like technology and photographs and and old videotape and. Uh, and even there, there are shots of the actual house that you get the sense that the documentarians went back to the house and took like updated video footage of the house. I mean, it weaves together like a documentary so much, but I think the payoff, and it's so successful partly because of the makeup and how it plays on this idea of corpses being icky, the, the payoff is that found footage. And, and it, I use that in the just most on-the-nose, literal, unimaginative sense of found footage, uh, is that they actually have to go out and dig up and find the, this footage. So that, that's they have to we, find the body. And then there's, like, the brothers subplot. There's the neighbor thing. And it's also convincing, considering how goofy a lot of the arcs are, if you describe what happens in the movie. Like, oh, right. the brothers. It's like it's the acting is so fucking good in that movie. <laughs> well, and even if you were described, and then the neighbors sneaking into the house. Yeah, and then they didn't notice. Right. But it's so <laughs> creepy when you see that. I mean, if you were to describe that to someone, it would sound laughable. But when they, dis- when they discover that image on the foot, it's like ah yeah <laughs> and then there's other and then in the credits there's the other faces in the photo which i loved but i did feel that was pushing it a bit much like i find it a little hard to believe that they wouldn't have seen those right right exactly because <laughs> i don't know you can go back and rewind which i did and go back to those scenes and sure enough uh alice is in all of the stuff that you've already seen but you're looking at the other little images so uh you so got- can you go back to the movie and still pause the the face I'm talking about and just have it on your computer for like an hour while you do other things? That's that's <laughs> my wallpaper right here. It's looking. It is, it, it is not. <laughs> and that is so creepy. I mean, it's just such a perfect example of the difference between like a scary, startling movie and a creepy slow burn 
just weird. And, and the pacing of it's like it's like almost it's like this herky jerky camera. Like ah, I can't see. Wait, is it this? It's a point in the movie where you're really not sure what's going to happen because there's, there's not been a lot of like money shots in the movie. So you're like, what is a money shot on this movie at this point? Yeah. And then you see that, and you're like, all right, I don't want to watch this anymore. I can't do it. <laughs> I'm never safe. What she wants, and it's ho- and it's haunting herself too. Like that's a scary thing. Like I know Daniel Craig's got some fucking. <laughs> well, what I one of the things that I love about Lake Mungo is, as far as a horror movie goes, it has a very definite and distinct kind of ghost mythology. You know, what they do in Paranormal Activity is this idea that it's not human, it doesn't have any relation to human experience, you can't understand it. And that's kind of cool, but it's based on this this malice you can never understand. The, the ghost mythology or the theology or worldview, if you will, behind Lake Mungo is entirely absent malice. And malice is such a part of ghost stories to make them scary, but Lake Mungo doesn't need to do that. And instead, it plays on this idea as a ghost being this kind of like lonely, forlorn, scary thing that because it's out of tune with time, like it's out, it's time shifted in a way, and it's right. been abandoned and it's lonely. And, and, and the whole reveal at the end with the mother uh, talking to the psychic about, I mean, you, you rev- this idea that, that ghosts are just... They don't, time, to, they don't want to be forgotten or abandoned or out of time. And it's, you know, there's no malice or there's no I'm going to kill you. It's just this kind of lonely sense of abandonment and loss that's so part of the human condition. I mean, it's it's existential horror at its most pure in a way. That's scary, too, because we're all alone. I think that that's ultimately way more scary than, yes. hey, here's a demon that you can't understand and it's mean. You know, I mean, that works. That's scary. <laughs> but this kind of thing just, I think, sticks with people far more effectively. I mean, I, I just think it's a far more effective kind of horror there, theology. If it's also, it, there's also something scary and creepy to me about Australia, like Picnic and Hanging Rock. But yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Lake Mungo's a real place with these weird, like, rock formations. Yeah. yeah. And Picnic and Hanging Rock, too. Picnic and Hanging Rock is more, you know, it was kind of more take shelter, like, you can read it and you can see it. But apparently it was like another dimension and the end of the novel or something. <laughs> Uh, see Wolf Creek as well while you're at it. I like how much, how much footage it gets. Uh, how much footage? How much mileage it gets out of the same footage? I love the layers. How it, yeah. it how it, cre- it You know, and this movie had me looking out my windows, checking my family over yeah. and over again. It was just terrifying to me. I'm just such a wimp it's, when it comes to this. But it, it, it goes through that whole first sequence. And, oh, it's just a hoax, and the brother did it. And then yeah. it uses the same yeah. footage to freak you out again. <laughs> oh, there's a face over there. I just, ah, but that's Because I'm not a wimp, and it scared the fuck out of me. Yeah. And I love that. I love that I still have, I'm still capable of being scared the way Lake Mungo scared me. I was delighted by how little I could sleep afterwards and miserable and mad at Tom I was. <laughs> so, so let me, go ahead, Tom. No, you go ahead. Uh, I just wanted to scare you guys a little bit more and tell you it all really happened. No, this right behind you. Worse, worse. This is slated for an American remake. Oh, uh, yeah, I saw that. <laughs> it, apparently, I think this has fallen off of so the Matt Reeves. Uh, oh God, no! I think this has fallen off the radar. Like I don't think it's happening anymore. But the guy who wrote uh, Orphan and Little Red Riding Hood, the guy who wrote that, was scheduled to—I don't know if he's directing or writing—but he was somehow attached to an American remake that would not have used the documentary conceit. Oh, I know, I know. <laughs> how awful! How much? I'd rather that? have Matt Reeves' shit 
pounded into my eyes with a pestle. <laughs> we can arrest that. Six hours. Just uh, watch Let Me In three times in a row, and that's the equivalent of Zack yeah. Snyder soundtrack screaming <laughs> in my ears like Clockwork Orange. Then have, God, why does it? Oh, I hate a fucking American remix. Why did it do it? Keep doing. But so I think while I, well, I was going to say that um, while well, like long shots, then we drove back to town in reverse. There's this beautiful long yeah, shot yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, of the car going backwards that, that make me that, that would constantly make me think this isn't found footage. Uh, I would rather label this as found footage than mockumentary because I think more people would watch it as found footage. Yeah. And the psychic going, well, I didn't want to, you know, screw up my confidentiality. with <laughs> Oh my God, so well, the reveals in this are so good. I mean, yeah. so many reveals just in a, in a, especially in a horror movie, are just manipulative or, oh, it was the secret experiments or, oh, it was the Indian burial ground or, or just crap like that. And just these reveals are just so effective and character driven and mysterious yeah. and added, you know, Dingus used the word layers. I mean, Lake Mungo is so beautifully layered and underacted. Uh, yep. uh, That's how you do found footage. Apollo 18, I'm looking at you fuckers. <laughs> All right, so let's uh, let's end. Dingus was late. So why can't those guys remake? Why can't they make Paranormal Activity 4 instead of the Catfish Douches? Kelly One, will you will you do your rendition of the Paranormal Activity 3 trailer for us? Naughty Mary, naughty Mary, Catfish. All right, so let's close out the Lake Mungo spoilers. Dingus, was this on your 3x3 for best makeup? This was not, no. Wow, I can't wait to see what you got then. Okay, so uh, timestamp, spoilers for Lake Mungo, over. Welcome back. We won't be spoiling Lake Mungo for you anymore. See it, and let's move on now to Dingus's number three choice for best makeup ever. Uh, I feel like such an idiot. I feel like an idiot for my number what? three. Why? Give us a line, Dingus, and we'll be the judge of that. I'm not, giving you, any, I'm not going to give you any lines from these. Uh, I'm going to give you any lines How dare you? This makeup's not worthy of a line. Dingus, do you need me to cue the... Not even an eyebrow line. <laughs> Get it? Mm. Yeah, cue it. Tom, do what you just said. I'm ready. Go ahead, Dingus. <laughs> All right. The, the make... Uh, this is the only one of mine, of my that three, that were nominated for an Academy Award. And I tried to uh, avoid, like, like Tom was talking about, kind of avoiding, like, Rick Baker <laughs> stuff and, and that kind of thing. <laughs> La, 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 la. Can we guess it, Dingus? Jar Jar before he became a senator, because that's when he had like pointier teeth. Because if you say, Dingus, if you say Avatar, I'm gonna have to uh, cancel your number two and your number one pick. <laughs> Sam Worthington, when he sees he's a machine, he didn't know because he couldn't feel that he was hanging and he was torso till he looked down, and screams no. And Lucas added another no. And that was James Cameron and McGee. No, it's... Wait. Uh, go ahead, Kelly. Okay, is the puppet in magic a makeup effect? Uh, Kelly, one, you'll get to do your number two, and your, yeah, you'll get to do your number two and your number one in a moment and save it for runners-up, but I'm going to say no as well. So, Dingus, what do you got? What's your number three? Fess up. All right, my number three is the Joker's scars and makeup in The Dark Knight. Dingus, that's yeah. not a bad one. You were totally making me think you were going to suck. That's a good one. That's my number one, you fucking bastard. <laughs> <laughs> now how dumb do you feel? All right, so the effect, is, the effect is what I just said. The artist is a guy named John Caglione Jr. 
Uh, and he's he's listed in the credits as the personal uh, the personal makeup guy to Heath Ledger, but he he also did the designing. Uh, th- this guy John Caglione did uh, Zero Effect. He did a, a movie I like called Stay. He did he he did a lot of uh, Michael Mann films. He also did Zelig actually. But uh, I really like uh, and if you read about how this this makeup was sort of constructed, it's really this this really great. Um, story of uh, collaboration, really. I mean, Heath Ledger coming in with his ideas, then watching uh, different different movies, and then deciding to do a prosthetic of the scars, and then doing the makeup that is not perfect. It's kind of smeary. And then along with what you know, Tom had mentioned with Gwyneth Paltrow, is, is, I think his hair is very much a part of that. So I, I love the Joker clown makeup, and then it has this prosthetic um, scarring underneath, that is, it, it is very much a prosthetic appliance, uh, but it's really. I, I just love the way that 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 you get a reveal of what, where that scar comes from. But I just love the way it looks, and I love the way the actor incorporates the makeup in his vocal choices. So okay, it's a joke. I got to call you out now, Dingus. Why on earth would you be sheepish about that pick? What's your deal? Yeah, what an uh, asshole. Because because the film was nominated for uh, a best uh, makeup Oscar, and I was kind of trying to avoid that and going for different uh, different <laughs> ideas. But I love I love Dingus. I love Dingus that you think you're too cool and that you're above the Academy Awards. Yeah. When when you have little contests about them every year, you are the biggest Academy Award follower fanboy that I know. If I need to know if somebody was nominated for something, I go to you. And this was his topic. <laughs> Okay. So you knew you knew Heath Ledger was going to be on it. Dingus, the Academy Awards are nothing to be ashamed of. As we say in Arkansas, sometimes even a blind pig digs up an acorn. <laughs> Wait a you minute. Mean, like crash. <laughs> this week's movie was set in uh, Ohio, not Arkansas. How dare you? Sometimes a pig eats shit that a bat came out, and then Gwyneth Paltrow's head comes off. Kelly Wan, get that out of my face. Uh. Uh, Dingus, what, I, the, the great thing too about, I mean, it's the makeup is such a part of, like you said, the performance and the narrative, like the story and the Joker's identity and how he's opposed to Batman. This idea of like a mask and uh, the, the the mask covering or the makeup covering what's underneath and how you can still see it with the Joker but you can't with Batman. I mean, there's so many layers here. Don't, I can't believe you would be sheepish about this. Come on, The Dark Knight is one of those like great movies that nobody should be ashamed to just be crazy about. Uh, even exactly. though it's, a it's like he's so stringy, his hair and wretched, and there's nothing funny about it. It's like you're watching this iconic performance that they show these uh, Anne Hathaway photos from the new. <laughs> I know, I'm totally thinking like, like, like Yeah, that's like the uh, the what's the guy who played the original? The Burt Ward? No, who played Batman? What was his name? Adam West. Yeah, it's like that looks like something yeah. in the West series. Whatever. It's like they're now doing. it's they're gonna Joel Schumacher it up again because yeah. Heath Ledger's dead, and it's like the greatest thing ever is over forever. <laughs> I just I love the, uh, the feeling that that his makeup is gonna come off on his clothes at any moment. I'm not gonna care. <laughs> I think is what is uh, so did Heath Ledger talk about like doing that whole like lip smacking vocal thing like that was part of having to deal with the makeup or that was a conscious choice or conscious choice he talked about I remember he yeah but he also uh, you know so and I don't know if this is apocryphal but he apparently came in with his ideas and his own makeup kit and sort of did up his face and they and then the filmmakers and the makeup artists were oh we really like that let's recreate that let's work with that and then they built these prosthetic appliances on his uh, you know, on his uh, cheeks to to match what he wanted to go for, right? So, 
Well, it's oh. just very much him saying, "This is my idea for the character, and this is where I want to go." Mm-hmm. Do you, do you know? Do you recall offhand what movies they were inspired by? I don't. Uh. Okay. Uh, do you, Tom? Are you just going to waste everybody's time right now by no, asking us questions? You know, we can't answer you, fucker. I would be curious to know. Uh, if only someone did a podcast with information on it that people listening could glean facts about. The I had so many facts about other stuff. I don't need to have facts about everything. It w- well, since the Joker wasn't real because he was in illusion because uh, Bruce Wayne was hallucinating because his dream wife sequence, right? yeah, his dream sequence that Tom had. Save it for uh, the non-spoiler part of the podcast, but let's go on now to Kelly Wan. Uh, so, any other comments? But So, the Joker was, was on your list, Kelly Wan. It was your number one choice? Oh, yeah. It's the greatest makeup ever, I think. Kelly Wan, do you have anything on your list that someone else didn't pick? Probably. <laughs> All right, then what is it? Oh, it's my turn again? Because my number two is Lake Mungo. Oh. Now, your number two. What was your number three? Royal Tenenbaums. Gwyneth Paltrow. Oh, yeah, that was lame. (laughs) It's no Joker. That's the worst one so far, (laughs) if I may. (laughs) If I may judge all of our work. Uh, But that's about to change, because uh, I'm going to do a line from this movie, from my uh, 19th favorite director. I am not a human being. I am an animal. <laughs> Eric Stoltz in Mask? <laughs> no, Michael J. Fox in Back to the Future. Wait. Oh, this is the that uh, circus movie about the elephants, like Water for oh, Elephants. Water, yeah, like Water for Elephants from the director oh. of Constantine. Good, good, Kelly. Tell us about that movie. Well, it's actually a movie about some dude with some kind of deformity, but... I was really impressed by Anthony Hopkins's beard. <laughs> that is not easy to grow. Uh, Kelly Wan, uh, does the Elephant Man hold up? Well, it's no human centipede, but a human centipede. <laughs> okay, hold on. Let me just do a time. Yeah, get a, get a timestamp on that, Dingus. All right, I good. Got it. All right. I had a cool idea. Um, it's human centipede. Remember the dogs that he made in Human Centipede? Yeah, his beloved three hound. So we do a crossover movie with Best in Show, that movie by the Spinal Tap guys, but it's about dog show. And like he brings out the human centipede dogs and like the judges all vomit. So would would you be able to get Fred Willard for that? <laughs> I don't know who that is. <laughs> all right. You should wait, 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 wait. Oh what what? Uh, so Elephant Man is your number two pick, right? Wait, wait, I had another one. Oh, yeah. Oh, another pick? Or save it for the runners-up? That was a movie scene. I wanted to pitch you. I guess it has nothing to do with what we're talking about, so I'll see. Oh, no, go ahead. No, I'm, I'm re- I've got my... Uh, go ahead. Uh, give me the elevator pitch, as it were. Okay. All right. It's Final Destination 6. Mm-hmm. I like it. It's these two dudes, and they're about to get on the plane, and they go, Oh, there's only room for one of us. So we got to flip a coin. Mm-hmm. And so he flips the coin, and then, like, the... It's, it's Tom Cruise and um, W.C. Fields, all right? Mm-hmm. For someone who's not as famous, for example, W.C. Fields. So W.C. Does it have to be someone who's alive? Oh, yeah. It's, it's Harold Lloyd. All right. So Harold Lloyd loses the tie. So, uh, all right, you. Well, when you get back, you know, we'll do this. And he says all these things like Anthony Edwards does in Top Gun, like, Oh, yeah, I'm going to make my last payment on the house. Yeah, I got a kid on the way. Like, okay, great. And he gets on the plane. You're like, oh. so the plane takes off, and the airport blows up. So <laughs> he was lucky to be on the plane. 
What's your best makeup effect ever in a movie? Thank you. You're welcome. Kevin, you were the master of subverted expectations. See what I did there? I talked about something that had nothing to do with anything. Speaking of subverting expectations. A sign of genius. Back to makeup now (laughs) on the internet. (laughs) Oh, kill me. All right, number two is the Elephant Man. Dingus, was that your number two or your number one? Anthony Hopkins' beard, though. Be sure to specify that when you type Mm -hmm. it for the uh, nerds. Uh, no, no, that was not. Uh, I had Human oh. Centipede, it, and then the the sequel to Human Centipede at uh, two and one. <laughs> I don't believe that that's true, because you haven't seen either one. Things actually, have you seen Human Centipede? No, because every time I say I'm going to see that, you say no. Right? Yeah, you do not. That's just not. go to the second one, so you because you'll be caught up on the story. Right, Dingus is not for you. What? Human centipede is not for Dingus. He's not. Are you going to take that from him, Dingus? He says <laughs> your taste, and I think Tom doesn't know your taste. There, I said it. Dingus, as someone who recommended Lake Mungo, I am telling you, you can skip Human Centipede. It's I mean, Lake Mungo, but with centipedes. I like Human Centipede, but I don't think Dingus needs to see it. Is all I'm saying, Kelly Wand. Not Kelly Wand. Not everybody needs to see every movie. What would a would a ghost of Human Centipede that, scare Tom? Like, if it was, like, a bunch of, like, crouching humans, <laughs> ghostly figures. Kelly Wan, no one knows what you're talking about. All right. <laughs> Dingus, what is your... As I call it, Tuesday. <laughs> Dingus, what is your number two choice for uh, best makeup in a movie ever of all time? All right. If I were to say the word tattoo to you fellas, what would uh, leap to mind? Villages. Bruce Dern and Maude Adams... Actually having sex at the end of the movie, tattoo. That's that's the uh, sort of like apocryphal story. One of the mysteries of Lost that was unsolved, as opposed to the one. Oh, you know what? Oh, rats! I hope you're not picking what I think you're picking, Dingus, because that's a good pick, and I wished I'd thought of it. The Russian lesbian rock band, too. One of those words is right. Hmm. Well, I know "band" is a hyphen. It. In that case, it's not what I'm thinking of. So, tattoo. I don't know, Dingus, it's Tattoo. Do you guys know about this movie, Tattoo, by Hangover the way? Hangover 2? Yeah, yeah, Bruce Stern. Yeah, like, he kidnaps, he falls in love with Maude Adams, who's a model, and he kidnaps her and tattoos yeah, Maude. Model. Maude. And she ends up at the end of the movie, spoiler, because nobody's going to see it who hasn't already seen it, because I don't think you can get it. But uh, he, she ends up, like, escaping by uh, having sex with him to sort of lower his guard and then killing him with his own tattoo needle. She stabs him. Uh, so it's like Goldfinger, but with tattoos instead of paint. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, let's see. A tattoo that Dingus likes. Were there tattoos in Rushmore? No. Never right. bang a girl with a tattoo needle around. It's playing with fire. Uh, I don't know, Dingus. Give us another. So Russian lesbian or mobster is one of the hints? Or uh, three of Oh, I didn't know that bo- but both. Well, now two of those words are. are... Hangover two. Hangover one. Movies with tattoos in them. Wait, uh, wait, uh, Waterworld, because the kid had Dry World tattooed on her back, which seems kind of dumb because she's going to grow, and then the map's going to be fucked up because she's going to be full size, so the map to Dry Land's going to be... Also, anyway, the movie I'm talking about has the words Russian and mobster in mind when Kelly's talking about that. Oh, you know what? Can I guess? Yeah. Easter Promises. That's what I was going to guess. Good job, Tom. How did you do that in Kelly's voice? Uh, all right, so I'm going with Nikolai's tattoos um, in Eastern Promises. Now, there's great tattoos throughout this film, but I'm going specifically with Nikolai's tattoos, and Nikolai's played by Viggo Mortensen. Uh, the artist in question here, now, 
this is hard to narrow down because there's a variety of artists who work on this. So I'm just going to go with the makeup designer, who's a guy named Stephen Dupuy. Um, but the the effect comes by a collaboration again with with uh, the actor involved, who's Viggo Mortensen and his research staff, because he was really passionate about understanding where these what these Russian tattoos um, communicated for this particular uh, level of person. And so they had seen a documentary called The Mark of Cain. Uh, this a person named Alex Lambert had done this documentary, and it's about these guys in Russian jails and deconstructing what all these tattoos meant. Or, or, or not deconstructing, but figuring out what... Uh, because these tattoos uh, are a map to where these guys are from, what they've done. Uh, basically, the, the view is that their body is their resume, pretty much. And the tattoos go on their body. And so I, I just love the way these tattoos look uh, on his body and the way uh, wow, and the way the, that uh, they, they've been constructed and used specifically in uh, both in the scene where he gets the star tattoos and in the fight scene where you have blood mixed onto the, uh, the makeup of the tattoos. And it took them like four hours to do his full body. Like there's 43 tattoos and they carefully researched what they had to do to, to make this. And what I love about this is that it adds these layers to the movie that most of us aren't going to get the first time or even second time through. But if you research it, you're going to understand that they really understood this is where this guy has been. And these are the things this guy has done. And these are what these tattoos mean. I love tattoo work in films. And this is some of the best. That's awesome, Dingus. And it, what I thought you were going with, but yours is a more sort of fleshed out, literally, uh, choice. There's a great tattoo reveal uh, on uh, a movie called Last Life in the Universe, where the lead character, played by uh, Tadanobu Asano, which is one of the only long Japanese names I can remember, uh, where, you, where you discover something about him by a tattoo. And there's like a great tattoo reveal that's a bit like Eastern Promises. Uh, but that's a good oh, pick. That's nice. I didn't even think of that. I like that. Good. Yeah. Uh, all right, that's way better than Elephant Man, by the way. What? <laughs> it's racist. All right, you guys ready for my number one? Yeah. Let's it's do a it. movie. Is it Boogie Nights, the last shot? It's a movie. Gotcha. I I have not even I haven't even seen this movie, so I kind of feel bad picking it. Um, I tried to watch it and couldn't get the sound to work uh, because it's a really old movie. It's from 1925. Hmm. And it's like this famous instance of makeup that I know the scene, but I've never seen it. And I've seen pictures and I remember being freaked out by it as a kid. And it's just so freaking timeless. And it so informs, I think, like how other scary faces look to us. And it's Lon Chaney's Phantom of the Opera makeup in the 1925 movie. And you can go to YouTube and watch the reveal scene. Again, I haven't seen the whole movie, but that reveal scene is just so famous and creepy and still effective. And he just looks so scary in there. And it's all just, you know, it's not digital, of course. It's all just practical makeup. It's this great stuff that Lon Chaney apparently came up with on his own. And the way the scene works is that the audience gets freaked out before the lead character who's taken the mask off. And, you know, nowadays, fan of the opera is like, Gerard Butler or the guy from the Andrew Lloyd Webber thing, you know, somebody really sexy who's got a little burn on one side of his face, you know, but but the original Phantom of the Opera was an utter freak. Like that stuff is so scary to me. Uh, so freaked me out as a kid. If you look at the YouTube video, I think it still looks freaky uh, enough that the, the camera just holds on him for a long. Like it doesn't need to do be a quick flash. It's just a shot of Lon Chaney looking scary. 
uh, and I love that. So that's my number one pick. So I'm, I'm establishing my hardcore film veteran, like ancient traditional film credentials right here with the earliest pick ever for a three by three. And that's 1920, <laughs> 1925's Man of the Opera. Wow. That's actually a really cool-looking movie. It's one of the few movies that looks... You've like never a, seen it. You've I swear seen that movie? I've seen that, yeah, and it's it's weird. It's a weird... Because there's a lot of shit in the canals and stuff. Like, it looks really expensive. What? There's canals? Yeah, isn't there a thing where they go under the thing and he's in a boat? Yeah, yeah. In the, in the stage version, they do like a lot of fog, and there's the boat that moves around while, while they're it singing. It looks like a big set. You know, and usually on sets, it's like a cardboard, 1918, fucking wax museum-looking trees. But you've never actually seen the whole movie. You're just talking about, like, stills or something, right? Uh, no, I've seen it. It's like, he's like, well, in the play, in the Andrew Lloyd Webber ones, isn't he not even ugly anymore? Like, it's fucking Robert Guillaume or... I don't know if you heard me, but I mentioned that a little side of his face is burned. So he's got like a half mask, and he's got, but he's completely disfigured. I don't, I don't know. Actually, I, I know the musical, but I don't know the. Did, did he get dropped in a vat of acid or something? Or I guess that's that's the Joker. <laughs> <laughs> How did he get that way? He was. Wait, here's what I don't get. Does he sing in the silent one? In the 1925 one? Well, yeah, and then they have the title cards. So he's so he is singing. He has a great singing voice. And as the Lon Chaney one. Uh, for some reason, I think it was a story first. Gaston right. Leroux, is that the... Uh, it, I think it's like yeah. an actual French story about a former singer or something who's disfigured and lives under the Paris Opera House and takes under his wing an ingenue who he falls in love with. So I think he's yeah, actually like her music teacher. Uh, I don't, I don't, you, you're the one that's seen it, Kelly Wand. You tell me. Well, I, I just don't... I mean, it's been, it's been, I haven't seen it since it first came out. <laughs> Uh, it just seems it's like they go, oh, this would make a great premise for a silent movie. Music teacher with great voice, something. <laughs> and then Andrew Lloyd Webber comes along 60 years later and goes, hey, uh, disfigured, horrible, hideous man, underwater canals. This would make a great musical with a handsome lead on wires. Kelly One, do you think that Gerard Butler is handsome? I've hit worse than that. Because <laughs> do you know who did the Phantom of the Opera movie? I'd hit the blonde uh, therapist in Fake Shelter, if that's what you're asking. <laughs> <laughs> ah, so I picked the wrong blonde. It's, it's blonde and short hair. Those are the those are the two things that you have to uh, that you look for. Uh, yeah. No, the uh, the Phantom of the Opera movie is Joel Schumacher. Oh, <laughs> uh, he's my favorite. <laughs> He's the straightest. Dingus, have you ever seen a Phantom of the Opera movie? Say, tell us true. Jennifer oh. Ellison. You ever seen those? I've oh. seen The Cottage. Ah, see? You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> All right, so that's my number one. Kelly oh, Wand's number one is The Joker from Dark Knight. Good pick, Kelly Wand. I meant the Riddler from the Jill Schumacher one. I got it mixed up. Sorry. Uh, Dingus, play us out. What is your number one pick for best makeup ever in a movie? Go. All right. I'm going to give you guys, finally, at long last, I'm going to give you a quote from the movie. Dingus, before you do, do I need to queue up the yakety sax? You probably should. Huh. 
guess that means no. <laughs> Go ahead. What do you got for us? All right, here it is. One eye took us to hell, and there is no God. Um, I mean, I like that pick, but there's so much more to it than just the makeup thing. Uh, but I love that pick. I'm glad. Any opportunity to talk about this movie, so... Good on you, Dingus. Oh, I've just, uh, this is what inspired the topic. This is a movie called The Hollow Rising. It's from 2009. It's uh, Nicholas Winding Refn. Refn. <laughs> Apparently, Denmark has a silent F, according to a lot of podcasts I listen to. Yeah. <laughs> Those crazies. Um, Rebels. Uh, the effect is one, is one eye's uh, other eye, uh, however you want to talk about that. And the uh, the artist involved is, the designer is named, I don't know how to say, the name it's Neom Morrison. Uh, she also did Bronson and a, and a movie called Red Road um, that was directed by uh, Andrea Arnold. Did you see Red Road? I did not, but I just looked right. up what else Neom Morrison had done. Did you see Bronson? Yeah. Okay, excellent makeup in Bronson, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I just I am so crazy about the way they made Mads Mikkelsen's uh, lost eye look. I think that that is phenomenal i i just as i watched the movie and and just as i dealt with everything mads mickelson has to do in that performance that he all the obstacles he has to overcome in making an incredible performance and valhalla rising he's amazing and he he doesn't get to say anything and he's got one eye (laughs) Um, he's under uh, a load of makeup he's got a prosthetic because uh, he's called his character's name's One Eye, so it's not a spoiler to tell you that his character's name's One Eye, and so he has one eye. And he, they don't get away with a patch or anything; they just have this scar. Um, and uh, but one of my runner-ups is also scars. But I just loved this. I loved the way it looked, and I was fascinated by it when watching it. Fascinating fascinated by what the char- what the actor had to overcome to create this character and also just how it looked it it looks like it i just it just looks so real to me um that this particular makeup effect and that was kind of the original idea for this is just one particular makeup effect you like and this makeup effect just that that uh whatever appliance or uh prosthetic they use to make that eye look the way it looks i just think that it is just fantastic uh, Kelly Wand, you have not seen Valhalla Rising, is that correct? Is that the one where Kevin Bacon's invisible? <laughs> so now that has Holla in the title. <laughs> you would enjoy that movie, Kelly Wand. The Kevin uh, Bacon one? Uh, that, that apparently doesn't have Elizabeth Shue nudity. Yeah, but what doesn't? You know, this is like the third week in a row you've said Valhalla Rising, and I keep not seeing it. So I guess this week I'll see it. So you'll shut up about it. You should you should work on that. It, it can be a challenging movie though. Like I can see it not working for a lot of folks. But uh, if you like Nicholas Winding Refn's more challenging material, you you do not want to miss Valhalla Rising. And certainly he made Matt Drive, Nichols, right? He did Drive, Drive, and the the Punisher trilogy, as I'm fond of calling uh-huh. the, the Pusher trilogy. Uh, and uh, and Valhalla Rising is kind of nothing like either of those. It's it's more like some of the other sort of freaky movies. See, I say you're not crazy, and it really is The Punisher. Just like uh, Take Shelter really happened. Let me tell you, if they do more Punisher movies, I would love for them to get Nicholas Winding Refn to direct them. Uh, So Valhalla Rising also has a weird uh, take on kind of a historical relevance. (laughs) Um, 
Dingus, I know you and I talked. You saw King Arthur recently. We talked a little bit what? about about Eagle, um, like, like movies that that tap into things that we know a little bit about the history, and they kind of like oh, Ironclad, which by the way I just found out is on Netflix's Instant View. Mm. Uh, it's the guy that did uh, Tom Hardy's horror movie Minotaur in which he fights a minotaur. Uh, he went on to do a movie called Ironclad, in which Paul Giamatti plays a failed English king to beautiful effects. Normally I think Paul Giamatti is horrible in historical period pieces. He's fantastic in Ironclad, which I heartily recommend, especially to you, Dingus, because of uh, your interest in Eagle and King Arthur. Uh, but I love the weird historical tweak in Valhalla Rising that I kind of don't want to talk about because it's cool. All right, I'll see it so you, you can start talking about it. But why why do you object to the makeup pick though? Because you 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 had an immediate objection. Oh, I just feel like it's kind of a. Uh, so I think what Nicholas Winding Refn is going for is the mythology of Odin having lost an eye to a raven. This idea of like a a godlike. Cre- I mean, it's a it's a tie in to Norse mythology. Oh yeah. Uh, I didn't even uh, think of that. That's a, I, I think oh that. like Thor and Natalie Portman was kind of a throwback to Phantom Menace. I don't know why you would bring that up when Anthony Hopkins has one eye because he is playing Odin in Thor. I mean, that's that's the that's the whole deal there. Uh, oh, so but I, I love that it, it's kind of like a cool character detail thing, and I love that about it. And I love you mentioning it in the context of how good Mads Mikkelsen is, considering dealing with that makeup, dealing with the lack of dialogue, uh, dealing with what looked like some pretty uncomfortable positions. Um, Do you love me, Coach? I'm mentioning it. <laughs> uh, but I just feel like I don't think of like when you mention the Joker, I think of the makeup figure so prominently into the rest of the movie here. I just kind of think of it as a cool detail. Uh, so I, I don't mean to, I, I think it's a great pick and I, I love that you called it out. I just if I was doing your list, Dingus, I would switch places with uh, Valhalla Rising and the Joker and Dark Knight. I don't understand why you would be sheepish about <laughs> picking the Joker and not Valhalla. Rising. Yeah. So, because I thought it would be a more obvious pick that that somebody else would use, the Joker. Yeah. Ah, and you were right about that. <laughs> a slight saber. <laughs> but dude, isn't the isn't the Anne Hathaway one gonna kind of suck? I mean, because he's. I mean, shouldn't they just stop making these? So here's the question I have: Is uh, Jonathan Nolan doing the script for Dark Knight Rises? I don't know. Okay, well, that's to me is a key ingredient. I, I hope so. Uh, Kelly Wand, have you seen Bronson? Uh, just the, in Death Wish. All right, so Kelly Wand, Bronson and Valhalla Rising are uh, required Nicholas Winding Refn movies after the Punisher, a.k.a. Pusher trilogy. He, he, Jonathan Nolan is doing Dark Knight Rises, so we have to see it now. Okay, thank you, Google. Do you guys have any runners-up? I have uh, Ellen Burstyn and Requiem for a Dream. I like that. I like well, how she gets. I like it when women don't like we use makeup to look just horrifying. Like I think that's like the opposite of a van. Like I think that takes balls. There I said it. So Dingus and I were talking about uh, earlier about uh, off the podcast about the movie Shotgun Stories. There's a beautiful actress in Shotgun Stories, and I want to say her name is I'm going to screw it up. I don't think she's been in anything else. I think her name is like Glenda Parnell. She plays Michael Shannon's wife. She's she's fantastically beautiful, but what's what's striking about her is she's in the movie without makeup, and it's so like it's so kind of refreshing when you're seeing a movie about real people who look like real people and who aren't 
wearing makeup, and and that's so that's just something I remembered recently. Is uh, you know, rarely do you see like beautiful women without makeup in a movie. Supposedly, that dude who played Nosferatu in Nosferatu, the 1920s one, didn't wear makeup, and he just looked actually looked like that that F. F. Murnau guy. Uh, the uh, uh, Willem Dafoe you're talking about. Uh, hate you people, <laughs> hate you people. Uh, what were you right? Because I were to go to runners up. I mean, I just think it's so much great. Like we mentioned before, like over the top horror movie stuff that either Rick Baker or Rob Boutin has done, where it's more like the, like the the actual. Uh, it's like an effect sequence. Like of course the the makeup for the werewolf that Rick Baker did in American Werewolf in London. Like all that great prosthetic stuff. You know, there's a human core there. But the human being attached to the prosthetics, there's, like, great stuff there. And I think Rob Bottin does a lot of that. Uh, he did the Fight Club makeup, actually. Like, there, I think of uh, makeup for people who have been beaten. You know, when somebody gets punched in a movie, normally they'll just do a little dark bruise under their eye. But you get, like, Rob Bottin doing these gross, like, swelled-up faces in Fight Club. Uh, poor Jessica Alba in Killer Inside Me. I think of that, like like how horrifying it is to see somebody who's been beaten, like some of those makeup effects. But again, that's like crazy over the top stuff. Um, other runners up for you guys. Uh, Tootsie, but before he becomes a woman. <laughs> what about uh, Robert Downey Jr. in Sherlock Holmes' Game of Thrones? Oh, is he in that? I thought that was the one where his face is in your hand. Kelly Wand, get that out of my face. <sighs> I can't believe... There, we were getting another of those. I'm really pumped. It's wrong. My, 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 Kelly, my only um, runner-up, my only runner-up would be, uh, you know, Tom. You just brought shotgun stories up, and that would be my runner-up. But it would be the scars on his back. Yes, yes. What about uh, Jeremy Irons in Dead Ringers? Because he has to like look like the other brother with his hair strand. Exactly. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that was CG, Kelly Wand. What about the fly? Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I wanted to rewatch that because all that is practical stuff. Like David Cronenberg does great, like weird, creepy, distinctive makeup stuff. Yeah. Uh, at least he used to. I couldn't believe Dingus when we saw that trailer about Freud versus Jung. And yeah. That to be a David Cronenberg movie. Good Lord. Oh, when's that come out? I totally want to see it. Uh, but does the fly hold up? Because the fly has yeah. all that fantastic practical stuff. Uh, Did you see the deleted fly scene? You can see it on YouTube where they uh, there's a scene they had to cut out because it was making people vomit. <laughs> where he uh, puts a cat and a, one of the baboons in, and it yeah, he has to kill it. And then and then another leg grows out of his abdomen, and he jumps on the roof, and he has to bite it off. Spoiler alert! Did you ever see that scene? Go check it out. Uh, I didn't, but I did want to rewatch The Fly to consider it for this, but didn't have time. Uh, and I know you guys are huge fans of The Fly Opera. Yeah, me and Dingus saw that. There was a woman, there's full frontal in that, Dingus, you'll back me up on this. And it was awesome to see The Fly Opera and see, like, an old woman in front of me with, like, those gold opera glasses going, like, uh, <laughs> like a baboon puppet. It was great. It's the only Speaking, opera I've seen, Tom. Have I missed any other good operas? No, that's once you've seen that, you're you're set. All opera. All right. Fuck you, Wagner. Speaking of full frontal, are you guys ready for next week's three by three? <laughs> Kelly Wand, you're gonna hate, hate, hate this one. I say you're gonna hate this one. You're gonna hate this one because it requires research, but you're gonna love it because I can only imagine where on earth you're gonna go with it. Uh 
Here we go. So let me first tell you guys a story. I don't think it's apocryphal. I think David Fincher has has actually told this story on the commentary for Fight Club. But uh, after the sex scene, uh, well, it, there's a bullet time sex scene with Brad Pitt and Helena Bonham Carter. And then they're laying there in bed, and Helena Bonham Carter says to him, I haven't been fucked like that since grade school. Mm-hmm. So the studio apparently was unhappy with that line, and they were like, this is really – it's a little over the top. Can you put a new line in there so that we have an option to use that one instead? And David Fincher was like, well, okay, I'll put a new line in there, but if you don't use the new line, we have to use this original one. And the ah. studio was like, okay, just give us another option. Yeah. And so the one that he picked to replace it was Helena Bottom Carter laying in bed after they've had sex saying to Brad Pitt, I want to have your abortion. <laughs> And so, of course, what ended up was the lesser of the two evils. And so the line we get now is, I haven't been fucked like that since grade school. So what I want from you guys. This, uh, the other one's pretty good, though. This is They're both good. This is being, Those are both taken off the table. What mm-hmm. I want from you guys are your best post-coital lines. So I don't want pillow talk. I don't want, like, just people, like... You know, the couple in bed after sex, like like normally in a movie in the olden days, it fades to black after sex. And then we go to the next morning. Nowadays, movies can actually show the act and we can see what the first thing is said after the act. So what I want from you guys are the immediate postcoital lines, your favorite instances of postcoital lines. I already have one. Why do you think I wouldn't like this? This is awesome. Well, because it's a research one. Like, you might have to think of. Oh, dude, what do I watch? What do I watch besides coital? It's the only thing I can pay attention to. And it's exactly as long as as I can pay attention to anything. (laughs) All right, good. Movie sex is longer. This is... Real sex. Oh, fuck that. It was time. But movies. Well, you know what? This sounds like the first time, Kelly Wan, where you don't like have any questions or reservations. So, Dave, no, no. Does this need any further explanation for you? Do you do you know the word? Because I know you're a more repressed person with a Christian Southern upbringing. Do you know what the word postcoital means, Dingus? You okay with that? Sure. I've got. Let's see. That's not true. That's impossible. Okay, I got it. <laughs> Is it in yet? <laughs> postcoital is not Darth Vader telling Luke that he's his father. Just so you know. What? <laughs> Wait, what's... Okay, I know this won't count because it's not post coital but what's that woman say in Fargo when she's sleeping with Steve Buscemi? She's like, all right, honey, I'm hearing bells. That's mid-coital. Mid-coital, all right. So I won't, that's off the table because it's too soon. Yeah. But maybe he's done and she doesn't... Yeah. Uh, all right, good. So that's our topic. Okay, okay, okay. What, what movie should we see next week? Uh... Money Pit Ball. <laughs> Which is being beat by Lion King savagely. Really? Isn't it? I can't believe. I thought America had caught on to 3D being lame, and now Lion King 3D. It's something they already saw, and it's in 3D. I mean, what the f- and Lion King's all deserts and shit. No, so. Money Ball is beaten by Dolphin Tail, isn't it? I like yeah. that. Money Ball is being savaged by Disney animals. I like that. I like animal movies making ass loads of money, unless they're animated animals like Lion King. Fuck that. But a real dolphin with a CG tail, I approve. Take that, 3D animation. What All right, so, uh, so next week we'll be seeing Dolphin's Tail. No! Paul <laughs> Hogan in it? The Jessica Alba? That's not a tail. <laughs> no, That's a tail. Uh, next week we will see George Clooney's upcoming movie, Ides of March. 
Don't know anything about it. We'll see it. Uh, we will bring you our three-by-three three of our best post-coital lines. Uh, I am Tom Chick. I've been joined by Christian Mirlowski. You're going to get there. I know it. It's Christian Mirowski. That's what I said. And Kelly Wand. Jim Carrey in the mask, but before the mask. That's good makeup. <laughs> Oh, a uh, body switch movie, uh, Quato from Total Recall, and the alien at the end of Alien Cubed that turns Ripley into Jesus. Stomach alien.